The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Starring Peter Jones as the book with Simon Jones and Geoffrey McGiven. This is the story of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, perhaps the most remarkable, certainly the most successful book ever to come out of the great publishing corporations of Ursa Minor. More popular than the Celestial Home Care Omnibus, better selling than 53 More Things to Do in Zero Gravity, and more controversial than Ulan Kalufid's trilogy of philosophical blockbusters, Where God Went Wrong, some more of God's greatest mistakes, and who is this God person anyway? And in many of the more relaxed civilizations on the outer eastern rim of the galaxy, the Hitchhiker's Guide has already supplanted the great Encyclopedia Galactica as the standard repository of all knowledge and wisdom, because although it has many omissions, contains much that is apocryphal, or at least wildly inaccurate, it scores over the older, more pedestrian work in two important ways. First, it is slightly cheaper, and second, it has the words Don't Panic inscribed in large, friendly letters on the cover. To tell the story of the book, it's best to tell the story of some of the minds behind it. A human from the planet Earth was one of them, though as our story opens, he no more knows his destiny than a tea leaf knows the history of the East India Company. His name is Arthur Dent. He is a six-foot-tall ape descendant, and someone is trying to drive a bypass through his home. Come off it, Mr. Dent. You can't win, you know. Look, there's no point in lying down in the path of progress. I've gone off the idea of progress. It's overrated. But you must realise that you can't lie in front of the bulldozers indefinitely. I'm game. We'll see who rusts first. I'm afraid you're going to have to accept it. This bypass has got to be built, and it is going to be built. Nothing you can say or do... Why has it got to be built? What, what do you mean, why has it got to be built? It, it is a bypass. You've got to build bypasses. Didn't anyone consider the alternative? There aren't any alternatives. Look, you are quite entitled to make any suggestions or protests at the appropriate time. Appropriate time? Yes. The first I knew about it was when a workman arrived at the door yesterday. Oh. I asked him if he'd come to clean the windows, and he said he'd come to demolish the house. He didn't tell me straight away, of course. Oh, no. First he wiped a couple of windows and charged me a fiver. Then he told me... But, Mr Dent, the plans have been available in the planning office for the last nine months. Yes. I went round to find them yesterday afternoon. You hadn't exactly gone out of your way to call much attention to them, had you? I mean, like actually telling anybody or anything. The plans were on display. <laughs> and how many average members of the public are in the habit of casually dropping around at the local planning office of an evening? <laughs> it's not exactly a noted social venue, is it? And even if you had popped in on the off chance that some raving bureaucrat wanted to knock your house down, the plans weren't immediately obvious to the eye, were they? That depends where you were looking. I eventually had to go down to the cellar. That's the display department. With a torch. The lights had probably gone. So had the stairs. Well, you found the notice, didn't you? Yes. It was on display in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet, stuck in a disused lavatory with a sign on the door saying, Beware of the Leopard. Ever thought of going into advertising? It's not as if it's a particularly nice house, anyway. I happen rather to like it. Uh, Mr. Dent! Yes, hello. 
have you any idea how much damage that bulldozer would suffer if I just let it roll straight over you? How much? None at all. By a strange coincidence, none at all is exactly how much suspicion the ape descendant Arthur Dent had that one of his closest friends was not descended from an ape, but was in fact from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Betelgeuse. Arthur Dent's failure to suspect this reflects the care with which his friend blended himself into human society, after a fairly shaky start. When he first arrived 15 years ago, the minimal research he had done suggested to him that the name Ford Prefect would be nicely and conspicuous. He will enter our story in 35 seconds and say, Hello, Arthur. The ape descendant will greet him in return, but in deference to a million years of evolution, he will not attempt to pick fleas off him. Earthmen are not proud of their ancestors and never invite them round to dinner. Hello, Arthur. Ford, hi, how are you? Fine, look, are you busy? Well, I've just got this bulldozer to lie in front of, otherwise, well, no, not especially. There's a pub down the road. Let's have a drink and we can talk. <laughs> Don't you understand? Mr. Dent, we're waiting! Ford, that man wants to knock my house down. Well, he can do it whilst you're away, can't he? But I don't want him to. Well, just ask him to wait till you get back. Ford! Arthur! Will you please just listen to me? I'm not fooling. I've got to tell you the most important thing you've ever heard. I've got to tell you now, and I've got to tell you in that pub there. Why? Because you're going to need a very stiff drink. Now, just trust me. I'll see what I can do. It had better be good. Hello, Mr. Prosser? Uh, yes, Mr. Dent. Have you come to your senses yet? Um, well, can we just assume for a moment that I haven't? Well? And that I'm going to be staying put here till you go away. So? So you're going to be standing around all day doing nothing? Could be. Well, if you're resigned to standing around doing nothing all day, you don't actually need me here all the time, do you? Uh, no. Uh, not as such. So if you can just take it as read that I'm actually here, I could just slip off down to the pub for half an hour. How does that sound? Um, that sounds, uh, oh, very reasonable, I think, Mr. Dent. I'm sure we don't actually need you there for the whole time. We can just, um, hold up our end of the confrontation. And if you want to pop off for a bit later on, I can always cover for you in return. Oh, oh, thank you. Yes, yes, oh, that'll be fine. Yes, very kind of you, Mr. Dent, very kind. And, of course, it goes without saying that you uh, don't try and knock my house over while I'm away. Oh, what? Good Lord! No, Mr. Dent! Do you think we can trust him? Myself, I'd trust him to the end of the earth. Yes, but how far's that? About 12 minutes away. Come on, I need a drink. By drink, Ford Prefect meant alcohol. The Encyclopedia Galactica describes alcohol as a colourless, volatile liquid formed by the fermentation of sugars and also notes its intoxicating effect on certain carbon-based life forms. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy also mentions alcohol. It says that the best drink in existence is the pan-galactic gargle blaster, the effect of which is like having your brain smashed out with a slice of lemon wrapped round a large gold brick. The guide also tells you on which planets the best pan-galactic gargle blasters are mixed, how much you can expect to pay for one, and what voluntary organizations exist to help you rehabilitate. Six pints of bitter, and quickly, please, the world's about to end. Oh, yes, sir. Nice weather for it. Going to watch the match this afternoon, sir? No, no point. Foregone conclusion, you reckon, sir? 
Arsenal without a chance. No, it's just that the world's going to end. Oh, yes, sir, you said. Lucky escape for Arsenal if it did. No, not really. There you are, sir. Six points. Keep the change. What, from a fiver? Thank you, sir. You've got ten minutes left to spend it. Ford, would you please tell me what the hell is going on? Drink up. You've got three pints to get through. Three at lunchtime? Time is an illusion. Lunchtime doubly so. Oh, very deep. You should send that into the Reader's Digest. They've got a page for people like you. Drink up? Why three pints? Muscle relaxant. You'll need it. Did I do something wrong today, or has the world always been like this, and I've been too wrapped up in myself to notice? All right, I'll try to explain. How long have we known each other, Arthur? Oh, five years, maybe six. Most of it seemed to make some kind of sense at the time. All right. How would you react if I said that I'm not from Guildford after all, but from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Beetlejuice? I don't know. Why, do you think it's the sort of thing you're likely to say? Drink up, the world's about to end. <sighs> this must be Thursday. I never could get the hang of Thursdays. On this particular Thursday, something was moving quietly through the ionosphere miles above the surface of the planet. But few people on the surface of the planet were aware of it. One of the 6,000 million people who hadn't glanced into the ionosphere recently was called Lady Cynthia Fitzmilton. She was, at that moment, standing in front of Arthur Dent's house in Cottington. Many of those listening to her speech would probably have experienced great satisfaction to know that in four minutes' time she would evaporate into a whiff of hydrogen, ozone and carbon monoxide. However, when the moment came, they would hardly notice because they would be too busy evaporating themselves. I have been asked to come here to say a few words to mark the beginning of work on the very splendid and worthwhile new Bedingford Bypass. And I must say immediately what a great honour and a great privilege I think it must be for you, the people of Cottington, to have this gleaming new motorway going through your cruddy little village. I'm sorry, sorry, your little country village of cruddy Cottington. I know how proud you must feel at this moment to know that your obscure and unsung hamlet will now Probably just your house being knocked down. What? It hardly makes any difference at this stage. My God, it is! What the hell are they doing? We had an agreement. Let them have their fun. Damn you and your fairy stories. They're smashing up my home. Stop, you battles, you homebreakers, you half-inch physical. Stop! Arthur, come back. It's pointless. 
Hell, I'd better go after him. Barman, quickly, can you just give me four packets of peanuts? Certainly, sir. There you are. 28 packets. Keep the change. Are you serious, sir? I mean, do you really think the world's going to end this afternoon? Yes, in just over one minute and 35 seconds. Well, isn't there anything we can do? No, nothing. Well, I always thought we were meant to lie down or put a paper bag over our head or something. If you like, yes. Well, will that help? No. Excuse me, I've got to find my friend. All of them. Last orders, please. Barbarians, I'll sue the council for every penny it's got. I'll have you hung and drawn and quartered and, and whipped and boiled, and, and then I'll chop you up into little bits until, until, until you've had enough. Arthur, don't bother. There isn't time. Get over here. There's only ten seconds left. And then I'll do it some more. And when I finish, I'll take all the little bits and I'll, I, I'll jump on them. And I'll carry on jumping on them until I get blisters. Or I can think of something even more unpleasant to do. And then I'll... What the hell's that? Arthur, quick, over here. What the hell is it? It's a fleet of flying saucers. What do you think it is? Quick, you've got to get hold of this rock. What do you mean, flying saucers? Just that. It's a Vogon constructor fleet. A what? A Vogon constructor fleet. I picked up news of their arrival a few hours ago on my subether radio. Ford, I don't think I can cope with any more of this. I think I'll just go and have a little lie down somewhere. No, just stay here. Keep calm. And just take hold of this... People of Earth, your attention, please. This is prosthetic Vogon jokes of the Galactic Hyperspace Planning Council. As you will no doubt be aware, the plans for the development of the outlying regions of the western spiral arm of the galaxy require the building of a hyperspace express route through your star system. And, regrettably, your planet is one of those scheduled for demolition. The process will take slightly less than two of your Earth minutes. Thank you very much. There's no point in acting all surprised about it. All the planning charts and demolition orders have been on display at your local planning department in Alpha Centauri for 50 of your Earth years, so you've had plenty of time to lodge any formal complaints, and it's far too late to start making a fuss about it now. What do you mean you've never been to Alpha Centauri? Oh, for heaven's sake, mankind, it's only four light years away, you know. I'm sorry, but if you can't be bothered to take an interest in local affairs, that's your own lookout. Energize the demolition beams. God, I don't know, empathetic bloody planet, I've no sympathy at all. some peanuts. What? If you've never been through a matter transference beam before, you've probably lost some salt and protein. The beer you had should have cushioned your system a bit. How are you feeling? Like a military academy. Bits of me keep on passing out. If I asked you where the hell we were, would I regret it? We're safe. Oh, good. We're in a small galley cabin in one of the spaceships of the Vogon constructor fleet. Ah, this is obviously some strange usage of the word safe that I wasn't previously aware of. I'll have a look for the light. All right. How did we get here? We hitched a lift. 
<laughs> Excuse me, are you trying to tell me that we just stuck out our thumbs and some bug-eyed monster stuck his head out and said, Hi, fellas, hop right in. I can take you as far as the Basingstoke roundabout. Well, the thumb's an electronic sub-ether device. The roundabout's at Barnard Star, six light-years away. But otherwise, that's more or less right. And the bug-eyed monster? It's green, yes. Fine. When can I go home? You can't. Ah, I've found the light. Good grief. Is this really the interior of a flying saucer? It certainly is. What do you think? Well, it's a bit squalid, isn't it? What did you expect? Well, I don't know. Gleaming control panels, flashing lights, computer screens. Not old mattresses. These are the Dentrassi sleeping quarters. I thought you said they were called Vogons or something. The Vogons run the ship. The Dentrassi are the cooks. They let us on board. I'm confused. Here, have a look at this. What is it? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's a sort of electronic book. It'll tell you everything you want to know. That's its job. I like the cover. Don't panic. It's the first helpful or intelligible thing anybody said to me all day. That's why it sells so well. Here, press this button and the screen will give you the index. You've got several million entries, so fast wind through the index to V. There you are, Vogon Constructor Fleets. Enter that code on the tabulator and read what it says. Vogon Constructor Fleets. Here is what to do if you want to get a lift from a Vogon. Forget it. They're one of the most unpleasant races in the galaxy. Not actually evil, but bad-tempered, bureaucratic, vicious and callous. They wouldn't even lift a finger to save their own grandmothers from the ravenous bug-bletter beast of trial. Without orders, signed in triplicate, sent in, sent back, queried, lost, found, subjected to public inquiry, lost again and finally buried in soft peat for three months and recycled as firelighters. The best way to get a drink out of a Vogon is stick your finger down his throat. And the best way to irritate him is to feed his grandmother to the ravenous bug bladder beast of trial. What a strange book. How did we get a lift, then? Well, that's the point. It's out of date now. I'm doing the field research for the new revised edition of the guide. So, for instance, I will have to include a revision pointing out that since the Vogons have made so much money being professionally unpleasant, they can now afford to employ Dentrassi cooks which gives us a rather useful little loophole. Who are the Dentrassi? The best cooks and the best drinks mixers, and they don't give a wet slap about anything else. And they will always help hitchhikers on board, partly because they like the company, but mostly because it annoys the Vogons, which is exactly the sort of thing you need to know if you're an impoverished hitchhiker trying to see the marvels of the galaxy for less than 30 Altarian dollars a day. And that's my job. Fun, isn't it? It's amazing. Unfortunately, I got stuck on the earth for rather longer than I intended. I came for a week and was stranded for 15 years. But how did you get there in the first place? Oh, easy. I got a lift with a teaser. You don't know what a teaser is. I'll, I'll tell you. Teasers are usually rich kids with nothing to do. They cruise around looking for planets which haven't made interstellar contact yet and buzz them. Oh, buzz them? Yes, they find some isolated spot with very few people around, then land right by some poor unsuspecting soul, whom no one's ever going to believe, and then strut up and down in front of him, wearing silly antennae on their head and making beep-beep noises. <laughs> Rather childish, really. <laughs> Ford, I don't know if this sounds like a silly question, but what am I doing here? Well, you know that. I rescued you from the Earth. And what has happened to the Earth? It's been... disintegrated. Has it? Yes, it just boiled away into space. Look, I'm a bit upset about that. Yes, I can understand. So, what do I do? 
You come along with me and enjoy yourself. You'll need to have this fish in your ear. I beg your pardon. What the devil's that? Listen, it might be important. What? It's the Vogon captain making an announcement on the PA. But I can't speak Vogon. You don't need to. Just put the fish in your ear. Come on, it's only a little one. Message repeat. This is your captain speaking, so stop whatever you're doing and pay attention. First of all, I see from our instruments that we have a couple of hitchhikers aboard our ship. Hello, wherever you are. I just want to make it totally clear that you are not at all welcome. I worked hard to get where I am today, and I didn't become captain of a Bogon construction ship simply so that I could turn it into a taxi service for degenerate freeloaders. I have sent out a search party. As soon as they find you, I will put you off the ship. If you're very lucky, I might read you some of my poetry first. Secondly, we are about to jump into hyperspace for the journey to Barnard Star. On arrival, we will stay in dock for a 72-hour refit, and no one's to leave the ship during that time. I repeat, all planet leave is cancelled. I've just had an unhappy love affair, so I don't see why anyone else should have a good time. Message ends. Charming, these Vogans. I wish I had a daughter so I could forbid her to marry one. You wouldn't need to. They've got as much sex appeal as a road accident. And you'd better be prepared for the jump into hyperspace. It's unpleasantly like being drunk. Well, what's so unpleasant about being drunk? You ask a glass of water. Ford. Yes? What's this fish doing in my ear? Translating for you. Look under Babelfish in the book. What's, what's happening? happening? We're, We're going, going into hyperspace. hyperspace. <laughs> 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 Babelfish is small, yellow, leech-like, and probably the oddest thing in the universe. It feeds on brainwave energy, absorbing all unconscious frequencies and then excreting telepathically a matrix formed from the conscious frequencies and nerve signals picked up from the speech centers of the brain. The practical upshot of which is that if you stick one in your ear, you can instantly understand anything said to you in any form of language. The speech you hear decodes the brainwave matrix. Now, it is such a bizarrely improbable coincidence that anything so mind-bogglingly useful could evolve purely by chance that some thinkers have chosen to see it as a final clinching proof of the non-existence of God. The argument goes something like this. I refuse to prove that I exist, says God, for proof denies faith and without faith I am nothing. But, said man, the Babelfish is a dead giveaway, isn't it? It proves you exist, and so therefore you don't. QED. Oh dear, says God, I hadn't thought of that, and promptly vanishes in a puff of logic. Oh, that was easy, says man, and for an encore he proves that black is white and gets killed on the next zebra crossing. Most leading theologians claim that this argument is a load of dingo's kidneys, but that didn't stop Ulan Kalufid making a small fortune when he used it as the central theme of his best-selling book, well, that about wraps it up for God. Meanwhile, the poor Babelfish, by effectively removing all barriers to communication between different cultures and races, has caused more and bloodier wars than anything else in the history of creation. What an extraordinary book. Help me write the new edition. No, I want to go back to Earth again, I'm afraid. Or its nearest equivalent. You're turning down a hundred billion new worlds to explore. Did you get much useful material on Earth? I was able to extend the entry, yes. Now, let's see what it says in this edition, then. Okay. Let's see. E-Earth. Tap out the code. There's the page. 
That doesn't seem to have an entry. Yes, it does. See, right there at the bottom of the screen, just under Eccentrica Golumbits, the triple-breasted whore of Eroticon 6. What, there? Oh, yes. Harmless. Harmless? Is that all it's got to say? One word? Harmless? What the hell's that supposed to mean? Well, there are a hundred billion stars in the galaxy and a limited amount of space in the book. And no one knew much about the Earth, of course. Well, I hope you've managed to rectify that a little. Yes, I transmitted a new entry off to the editor. He had to trim it a bit, but it's still an improvement. What does it say now? Mostly harmless. Mostly harmless? Well, that's the way it is. We're on a different scale now. OK, Ford, I'm with you. I'm bloody well coming with you. Where are we now? Not far from Barnard's Star. It's a beautiful place and a sort of hyperspace junction. You can get virtually anywhere from there. That is, assuming that we actually get there. What's that? Well, if we're lucky, it's just the Vogons come to throw us into space. And if we're unlucky? If we're unlucky, the captain might want to read us some of his poetry first. Vogon poetry is, of course, the third worst in the universe. The second worst is that of the Asgoths of Crea. During a recitation by their poet master Granthas the Flatulent of his poem, Ode to a small lump of green putty I found in my armpit one midsummer morning, four of his audience died of internal hemorrhaging, and the president of the Mid-Galactic Arts Nobling Council survived by gnawing one of his own legs off. Granthos is reported to have been disappointed by the poem's reception and was about to embark on a reading of his 12-book epic entitled My Favourite Bathtime Gurgles when his own major intestine, in a desperate attempt to save humanity, leapt straight up through his neck and throttled his brain. The very worst poetry of all perished along with its creator, Paul Neil Milne Johnston of Redbridge, in the destruction of the planet Earth. Vogon poetry is mild by comparison, and when the Vogon captain began to read, it provoked this reaction from Ford Prefect. <coughs> and this from Arthur Dent. <coughs> oh, friend, grunt, buckley, my micturations are to me as plurgled rabble rotets in a lurking bee. Group, I implore thee, my footing, turning drones, and hoopsiously drain me with crinkly binge wordles, for otherwise I will rent thee the gob awards with my blurgle crunch, see if I don't. So, earthlings, I present you with a simple choice. I was going to throw you straight out into the empty blackness of space to die horribly and slowly, but there is one way, one simple way, in which you may save yourselves. Now think very carefully. If you hold your very lives in your hands. Now choose. Either die in the vacuum of space or... Tell me how good you thought my poem was. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. 
In that episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Peter Jones starred as the book, Simon Jones was Arthur Dent and Geoffrey McGiven, Ford Prefect. Bill Wallace was Prosser and the Fogon Captain, with Joe Kendall as Lady Cynthia Fitzmelton and David Goodison as the barman. The programme was written by Douglas Adams and produced by Simon Brett with the assistance of Paddy Kingsland at the Radiophonic Workshop and a small furry creature from the Crab Nebula. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, starring Peter Jones as The Book. in the uncharted backwaters of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy lies a small unregarded yellow sun. Orbiting this at a distance of roughly 90 million miles is an utterly insignificant little blue-green planet whose ape-descended life forms are so amazingly primitive that they still think digital watches are a pretty neat idea. This planet has or had a problem which was this. Most of the people living on it were unhappy for pretty much of the time. Many solutions were suggested for this problem, but most of these were largely concerned with the movements of small green pieces of paper, which is odd because on the whole, it wasn't the small green pieces of paper that were unhappy. And so the problem remained, and lots of the people were mean, and most of them were miserable, even the ones with digital watches. Many were increasingly of the opinion that they'd all made a big mistake in coming down from the trees in the first place. And some said that even the trees had been a bad move and that no one should ever have left the oceans. And then one day, nearly 2,000 years after one man had been nailed to a tree for saying how great it would be to be nice to people for a change, a girl, sitting on her own in a small cafe in Rickmansworth, suddenly realised what it was that had been going wrong all this time and she finally knew how the world could be made a good and happy place. This time, it was right, it would work, and no one would have to get nailed to anything. Sadly, however, before she could get to a phone to tell anyone, the Earth was unexpectedly demolished to make way for a new hyperspace bypass, and so the idea was lost forever. Meanwhile, Arthur Dent has escaped from the Earth in the company of a friend of his, who has unexpectedly turned out to be from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Betelgeuse. His name is Ford Prefect, for reasons which are unlikely to become clear again at the moment, and they are both in dead trouble with the captain of a Vogon spaceship. So, Earthlings, I present you with a simple choice. Think carefully for you hold your very lives in your hands. Now choose. Either die in the vacuum of space or... 
Tell me how good you thought my poem was. I liked it. Oh, oh, yes, I thought that some of the metaphysical imagery was particularly effective. Yes? Oh. And, um, interesting rhythmic devices, too, which seemed to counterpoint the... Uh... Counterpoint the surrealism of the underlying metaphor of the, um... Humanity of the, uh... Vagonity. What? Vagonity. Oh, oh, Vagonity, sorry. Of the poet's compassionate soul, which contrived through the medium of the verse structure to sublimate this, transcend that, and come to terms with the fundamental dichotomies of the other, and one is left with a profound and vivid insight into... Uh, into whatever it was that the, the poem, poem was, was about. about. Ah, well done, Arthur. That was very good. So what you're saying is that I write poetry because underneath my mean, callous, heartless exterior, I really just want to be loved. Is that right? Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, yes, yes, don't we all, deep down, you know. Uh, well, you're completely wrong. I just write poetry to throw my mean, callous, heartless exterior into sharp relief. I'm going to show you off the ship anyway. Good! Take the prisoners to number three airlock and throw them out. You can't throw us off into deep space. We're trying to write a book. I don't want to die now. I've still got a headache. I don't want to go to heaven with a headache. I'd be all cross and wouldn't enjoy it. You can't do this. Why not, you puny creature? Oh, why not? Why not? Doesn't have to be a reason for everything. Why don't you just let us go on a mad impulse? Go on, live a little. Surprise yourself. Counterpoint the surrealism of the underlying metaphor. Death's too good for. Oh! Let go of me, you brute! Don't you worry, I'll think of something. Resistance is useless! I woke up this morning and thought I'd have okay. a nice, relaxed day. Right. Do a bit of reading, brush the dog. I know. It's I know. now yeah. just after four in the afternoon and I'm already being thrown yes. out of an alien spaceship five light years from yes. the smoking yes, remains of the Earth. All right, just stop panicking! Who said anything about panicking? This is still just a culture shock. Arthur, you're getting hysterical. Shut up! Resistance is useless! You can shut up as well. Resistance is useless! No, give it a rest. Do you really enjoy this sort of thing? Resistance is... What do you mean? I mean, does it give you a full, satisfying life? Stomping around, shouting, pushing people out of spaceships? Well, they are so good. They have to be. But now you come to mention it, I suppose most of the actual minutes are pretty lousy. <laughs> Except some of the shouting I quite like. Resistance <laughs> yeah, Sure, yes, you're good at that, I can tell. But if it's mostly lousy, then why do you do it? What is it? The girls? The leather? The machismo? I, I don't know. I, I think I just sort of do it, really. <laughs> there, Arthur, you think you've got problems. Yes, this guy's still half-throttling me. Yeah, but try and understand his problem. Right, so... What's the Well, stop doing it, of course. Well, doesn't sound that great to me. Well, wait a minute, that's just the start. There's more to it than that, you see. Uh, uh, no, uh, I think if it's all the same to you, I'd better just get you both shoved into this airlock and then go get on with some other bits of shouting I've got to do. <laughs> I mean, come on, I mean, now look. Ah. Thanks for taking an interest. Bye now. Oh, don't do it. No, listen, listen. There's a, there's a whole world you don't know anything about. I mean, here, how about this? Da-da-da-dum. I mean, doesn't that stir anything in you? Bye. I'll mention what you said to my aunt. Potentially bright lad, I thought. We're trapped now, aren't we? Ah, uh, yes.
We're trapped. Well, didn't you think of anything? Oh, yes. Yes? Uh, but unfortunately, it rather involved being on the other side of the airtight hatchway, oh. they've just sealed behind us. So what happens next? The hatchway in front of us will open automatically in a moment, and we'll shoot out into deep space and asphyxiate in about 30 seconds. So this is it? We're going to die? Yes. Except... No. Wait a minute. What's this switch? What? Where? No, I was only fooling. We are going to die after all. You know, it's at times like this when I'm trapped in a Fogon airlock with a man from Beetlejuice and about to die of asphyxiation in deep space that I really wish I'd listened to what my mother told me when I was young. Why? What did she tell you? I don't know. I didn't listen. <laughs> Terrific. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a truly remarkable book. The introduction starts like this. Space, it says, is big, really big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the street to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space. Listen. And so on. After a while, the star settles down a bit, and it starts telling you things you actually need to know, like the fact that the fabulously beautiful planet Bethselemin is now so worried about the cumulative erosion caused by 10 million visiting tourists a year that any net imbalance between the amount you eat and the amount you excrete whilst on the planet is surgically removed from your body weight when you leave. So every time you go to the lavatory there, it's vitally important to get a receipt. In the entry in which it talks about dying of asphyxiation 30 seconds after being thrown out of a spaceship, it goes on to say that what with space being the size it is, the chances of being picked up by another craft within those seconds are 2 to the power of 267,709 to 1 against, which, by a staggering coincidence, was also the telephone number of an Islington flat where Arthur once went to a very good party and met a very nice girl whom he entirely failed to get off with. Though the planet Earth, the Islington flat and the telephone have all now been demolished, it is comforting to reflect that they are in some small way commemorated by the fact that 29 seconds later, Ford and Arthur were in fact rescued. There you are. I told you. I think of something. Oh, sure. Bright idea of mine. To find a passing spaceship and get rescued by it. Oh, come on. The chances against it were astronomical. Don't knock it. It works. Now, where are we? Well, I hardly like to say this, but it looks like the seafront at South End. God, I'm relieved to hear you say that. Why? Because I thought I must be going mad. Perhaps we weren't rescued after all. Perhaps we died. What's that meant to mean? When I was young, I used to have this nightmare about dying. I used to lie awake at night, screaming. All my school friends went to heaven or hell, and I was sent to South End. Perhaps we'd better ask somebody what's going on. How about that man over there? The one with the five heads crawling up the wall? Ah, uh, yes. Uh, sir, excuse me. Uh, excuse me. You know, if this is South End, there's something very odd about it. You mean... The way the sea stays steady as a rock and the buildings keep washing up and down. Yes, I thought that was odd. Two to the power of 100,000 to one against and falling. What was that? It sounds like a measurement of probability. 
Hey, that couldn't mean... No. What? I'm, well, I'm not sure, but it means we definitely are on some kind of spaceship. Something seems to be melting away. The stars are swirling. A dust bowl. Snow. My legs drifting off into the sunset. Hell, my left arm's come off too. How am I going to operate my digital watch now? Ford, you're turning into a penguin. Stop it. Two to the power of 75,000 to one against and falling. Hey, who are you? Where are you? What's going on? And is there any way of stopping it? Please relax. You are perfectly safe. That's not the point. The point is that I am now a perfectly safe penguin, and my colleague here is rapidly running out of limbs. It's all right. I've got them back now. Two to the power of 50,000 to one against and falling. Admittedly, they're longer than I usually like them, but... Uh... Isn't there anything you feel you ought to be telling us? Welcome to the Starship Heart of Gold. Please do not be alarmed by anything you see or hear around you. You are bound to feel some initial ill effects as you've been rescued from certain death at an improbability level of 2 to the power of 267,709 to 1 against, possibly much higher. We are now cruising at a level of 2 to the power of 25,000 to 1 against and falling, and we will be restoring normality as soon as we are sure what is normal anyway. Thank you. 2 to the power of 20,000 to 1 against and falling. Arthur, this is fantastic. We've been picked up by a ship with the new infinite improbability drive. This is really incredible, Arthur. Arthur? What's happening? Ford, there's an infinite number of monkeys outside who want to talk to us about this script for Hamlet they've worked out. The infinite improbability drive is a wonderful new method of crossing interstellar distances in a few seconds without all that tedious mucking about in hyperspace. The principle of generating small amounts of finite improbability by simply hooking the logic circuits of a Bambolwini 57 submeson brain to an atomic vector plotter suspended in a strong Brownian motion producer, say a nice hot cup of tea, were of course well understood, and such generators were often used to break the ice at parties by making all the molecules in the hostess's undergarments simultaneously leap one foot to the left, in accordance with the theory of indeterminacy. Many respectable physicists said that they weren't going to stand for that sort of thing, partly because it was a debasement of science, but mostly because they didn't get invited to those sort of parties. Another thing they couldn't stand was the perpetual failure they encountered in trying to construct a machine which could generate the infinite improbability field needed to flip a spaceship between the furthest stars, and in the end, they grumpily announced that such a machine was virtually impossible. Then, one day, a student who had been left to sweep up the lab after a particularly unsuccessful party found himself reasoning this way. If such a machine is a virtual impossibility, then it must logically be a finite improbability. So all I have to do in order to make one is to work out exactly how improbable it is, then feed that figure into the finite improbability generator, give it a fresh cup of really hot tea, and then turn it on. He did this and was rather startled to discover that he'd managed to create the long-sought-after infinite improbability generator out of thin air. It startled him even more when just after he was awarded the Galactic Institute's prize for extreme cleverness, he got lynched by a rampaging mob of respectable physicists who had finally realized that the one thing they really couldn't stand was a smart-ass. Five to one against and falling. Four to one against and falling. Three to one. Two, 
one, probability factor of one to one, we have normality. I repeat, we have normality. Anything you still can't cope with is therefore your own problem. Please relax. You will be sent for soon. Who are they, Trillian? Oh, just a couple of guys we picked up in open space. Sector ZZ9, plural Z-alpha. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a very sweet thought, Trillian, but do you really think it's wise under the circumstances? Mm -hmm. I mean, here we are, on the run and everything. We've got the police of half the galaxy after us, and we stopped to pick up hitchhikers. Okay, so, ten out of ten for style, but minus several million for good thinking, okay? Zayford, they were floating unprotected in open space. You didn't want them to die, did you? Well, not as such, no, but... Anyway, I didn't pick them up. The ship did it all by itself. What? Whilst we were in improbability drive. <laughs> That's incredible. No, just very, very improbable. Look, don't worry about the aliens. They're just a couple of guys, I expect. I'll send the robot down to check them out. Hey, Marvin. I think you ought to know I'm feeling very depressed. God. Well, here's something to occupy you and keep your mind off things. It won't work. I have an exceptionally large mind. Marvin. All right, what do you want me to do? Go down to number two entry bay and bring the two aliens up here under surveillance. Just that? Yes. I won't enjoy it. She's not asking you to enjoy it. Just do it, will you? All right, I'll do it. Yeah. Good, great. Thank you. I'm not getting you down at all, am I? No, no, Marvin. That's just fine, really. I wouldn't like to think I was getting you down. No, don't worry about that. You just act as comes naturally and everything will be fine. You're sure you don't mind? No, no, it's all just part of life. Life? Don't talk to me about life. I don't think I can stand that robot much longer, Zaphod. The Encyclopedia Galactica defines a robot as a mechanical apparatus designed to do the work of a man. The marketing division of the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation defines a robot as your plastic pal who's fun to be with. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy defines the marketing division of the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation as a bunch of mindless jerks who'll be the first against the wall when the revolution comes, with a footnote to the effect that the editors would welcome applications from anyone interested in taking over the post of robotics correspondent. Curiously enough, an edition of the Encyclopedia Galactica that fell through a time warp from a thousand years in the future defined the marketing division of the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation as a bunch of mindless jerks who were the first against the wall when the revolution came. I think this ship is brand new, Arthur. How can you tell? Have you got some exotic device for measuring the age of metal? No, I just found this sales brochure lying on the floor. The universe can be yours. Ah, and look, I was right. Sensational new breakthrough in improbability physics. As the ship's drive reaches infinite improbability, it passes through every conceivable point in every conceivable universe almost simultaneously. You select your own re-entry point. Be the envy of other major governments. This is big league stuff. It looks a hell of a lot better than that dingy Bogon ship. This is my idea of a spaceship. All gleaming white, flashing lights, everything. What happens if I press this button? I wouldn't. Oh. What happened? A sign lit up saying, please do not press this button again. They make a big thing of the ship's cybernetics. A new generation of serious cybernetics corporation robots and computers with the new GPP feature. GPP? What's that? Uh, it says genuine people personalities. Sounds ghastly. <sighs> it is. What? Ghastly. It all is. Absolutely ghastly. Just don't even talk about it. Look at this door. 
All the doors in this spacecraft have a cheerful and sunny disposition. It is their pleasure to open for you and their satisfaction to close again with the knowledge of a job well done. Hateful, isn't it? Come on, I've been ordered to take you up to the bridge. Here I am, brain the size of a planet, and they tell me to take you up to the bridge. Call that job satisfaction, because I don't. Excuse me, which government owns this ship? You watch this door. It's about to open again. I can tell by the intolerable air of smugness it suddenly generates. Come on. Thank you, the marketing division of the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation. You're welcome. Let's build robots with genuine people personalities, they said. So they tried it out with me. I'm a personality prototype. You can tell, can't you? Um... I hate that door. I'm not getting it down, am I? Which government owns this ship? No government owns it. It's been stolen. Stolen? Stolen? Who by? Zaphod Beeblebrox. Zaphod Beeblebrox? Sorry, did I say something wrong? Pardon me for breathing, which I never do anyway, so I don't know why I bothered to say it. Oh, God, I'm so depressed. Here's another of those self-satisfied doors. Life. Don't talk to me about life. No one even mentioned it. Really? Zaphod Beeblebrox. And news reports brought to you here on the Sub-Ether Wave Band, broadcasting around the galaxy around the clock. And we'll be saying a big hello to all intelligent life forms everywhere. And to everyone else out there, the secret is to bang the rocks together, guys. And of course, the big news story tonight is the sensational theft of the new improbability drive prototype ship by none other than Zaphod Beeblebrox. And the question everyone's asking is, has the big Z finally flipped? Beeblebrox, the man who invented the pan-galactic gargle blaster, ex-confidence trickster, part-time galactic president, once described by eccentric Columbits as the best bang since the big one, and recently voted the worst-dressed sentient being in the universe for the seventh time running. Has he got an answer this time? We asked his private brain care specialist, Gag Halfront. Well, look, Zephod's just this guy, you know? What do you turn it off for, Trillium? Zephod. I've just thought of something. Yeah? We picked those couple of guys up in... Zaphod, please take your hand off me. And the other one. Thank you. And the other one. I grew that one specially for you, Trillian. You know that? Took me six months, but it was worth every minute. We picked them up in sector ZZ9, plural Z-alpha. Doesn't that mean anything to you? Uh, on the whole, no. Well, it's where you originally picked me up. Let me show it to you on the screen. Right there. Hey, right. Mm. I, I don't believe it. How the hell did we come to be there? Improbability drive. We pass through every point in the universe. You know that. Yeah, but, but picking them up there is just too strange a coincidence. Mm. I want to work this out. Computer? Hi there. Oh, I want you to know that whatever your problem, I am here to help you solve it. Uh, look, I, I think I'll just use a piece of paper. Sure thing. I understand. If you ever need... Shut up. Okay, okay. 
Trillium, listen. Mm -hmm. The ship picked them up all by itself, right? Right. Right. So, that already gives us a high improbability factor. Mm -hmm. It picked them up in that particular space sector, which gives us another high improbability factor. Mm -hmm. Plus, they were not wearing spacesuits, so we picked them up during a crucial 30-second period. I've got a note for that factor here. Put it all together, and we have a total improbability of... Yeah, well, it's uh, pretty vast, but it's not infinite. At what point did we actually pick them up? At infinite improbability level. Which leaves us a very large improbability gap still to be filled. Look, they're on the way up here now, aren't they? Mm -hmm. With that bloody robot. Uh, can we pick them up on any monitor cameras? I should think so. And then, of course, I've got this terrible pain in all the diodes down my left side. Is that so? Oh, yes. I mean, I've asked for them to be replaced, but no one ever listens. I can imagine. Oh, God, I don't believe it. Well, well, well. Zephant <laughs> I don't believe it. This is just too amazing. Look, Trillian, I'll just uh, handle this. Is there anything wrong? I think I'll just wait in the cabin. I'll be back in a minute. Oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to be so unbelievably cool about it, it would flummox a vegan snow lizard. This is terrific. <laughs> what real cool. Several million points out of ten for style. Well, you enjoy yourself, Zephant. I don't see what's so great myself. I'll go and listen for the police on the sub-ether wave band. Right. Which is the most nonchalant chair to be discovered working at? Yeah. Okay. That's real service. I suppose you'll want to see the aliens now. Do you want me to sit in a corner and rust, or just fall apart where I'm standing? Show them in, please, Marvin. Ford, hi. How are you? Glad you could drop in. Zephard, great to see you. You're looking well. The extra arm suits you. Nice ship you've stolen. You mean you know this guy? Know him? He's... Oh, oh Zephard, this is a friend of mine, Arthur Dent. I saved him when his planet blew up. Oh, sure. Hi, Arthur. Glad you could make it. And, Arthur, this is my... We've met. What? Oh, uh, have we... Hey, what do you mean you've met? This is Zaphod Beeblebrox from Beetlejuice 5, you know, not, not bloody Martin Smith from Croydon. I don't care. We've met, haven't we, Zaphod? Or should I say, Phil? What? Uh, you, you'll have to remind me. I have a terrible memory for species. It was at a party. I rather doubt it. Cool it, will you, Arthur? A party six months ago on Earth, England, London, uh, Islington. Oh, <laughs> that party... Zephod, you don't mean to say you've been on that miserable little planet as well? No, of course not. Well, I may have just dropped in briefly on my way somewhere. What is all this, Arthur? At this party, there was a girl. I'd had my eye on her for weeks. Beautiful, charming, devastatingly intelligent. Everything I'd been saving myself up for. And just when I'd finally managed to get her for myself for a few tender moments, this friend of yours barges up and says, Hey, doll, is this guy boring you? Come and talk to me. I'm from a different planet. I never saw her again. Zaphod? Yes, he only had the two arms and the one head, and he called himself Phil, but... But you must admit that he did actually turn out to be from a different planet, Arthur. Good God, it's her. Trisha McMillan, what are you doing here? Same as you, Arthur. I hitched a ride. After all, with a degree in maths and another in astrophysics, it was either that or back to the dole queue on Monday. Oh, I'm sorry I missed that Wednesday lunch date, but I was in a black hole all morning. Oh, God. Ford, this is Trillian. Hi, Trillian, this is my semi-cousin Ford, who shares three of the same mothers as me. Hi. Trillian, is this sort of thing going to happen every time we use the infinite improbability drive? Very probably, I'm afraid. Zaphod Beeblebrox, this is a very large drink. Hi. <laughs> 
Will our heroes be able to enjoy a nice relaxed evening at last? How will they cope with their new social roles? Will they survive the deadly missile attack which is launched on them three minutes into the next episode? Find out in next week's exciting instalment of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In that episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Peter Jones was the book. Simon Jones played Arthur Dent and Geoffrey McGiven, Ford Prefect. Stephen Moore was Marvin, Mark Wing Davy, Zephod Beeblebrox, Susan Sheridan, Trillian, Bill Wallace, the Vogon Captain, and David Tate, the Vogon Guard and Computer. The programme was written by Douglas Adams and produced by Geoffrey Perkins with the assistance of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. And it'll be repeated through a time warp on the home service in 1951. Hi there, this is Eddie, your shipboard computer, and I just want to mention here that we are now moving into orbit around the legendary planet of Magrathia. Sorry to interrupt your social evening. Have a good time. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, starring Peter Jones as The Book. of ancient time, in the great and glorious days of the former galactic empire, life was wild, rich, and on the whole tax-free. In those days, spirits were brave, the stakes were high, men were real men, women were real women, and small fairy creatures from Alpha Centauri were real small fairy creatures from Alpha Centauri. And all dared to brave unknown terrors, to do mighty deeds, to boldly split infinitives that no man had split before. And thus was the Empire forged. Many men, of course, became extremely rich. But this was perfectly natural and nothing to be ashamed of, because no one was really poor, at least no one worth speaking of. And for these extremely rich merchants, life eventually became rather dull, and it seemed that none of the worlds they settled on was entirely satisfactory. Either the climate wasn't quite right in the later part of the afternoon, or the day was half an hour too long, or the sea was just the wrong shade of pink. And thus were created the conditions for a staggering new form of industry. Custom-made luxury planet building. The home of this industry was the planet Magrathia, where vast hyperspatial engineering works were constructed to suck matter through white holes in space and form it into dream planets, lovingly made to meet the exacting standards of the galaxy's richest men. And so successful was this venture that very soon Magrathia itself became the richest planet of all time and the rest of the galaxy was reduced to abject poverty. 
and so the system broke down, the empire collapsed, and a long, sullen silence settled over the galaxy, disturbed only by the pen-scratchings of scholars as they laboured into the night over smug little treatises on the value of a planned political economy. In these enlightened days, of course, no one believes a word of it. Meanwhile, on Zephod Beeblebrox's ship, deep in the darkness of the Horsehead Nebula, I'm sorry, I just don't believe a word of it. Listen to me, Ford. I found it. I swear I found it. Magrathia is a myth, a fairy story. It's what parents tell their kids about at night if they want them to grow up to become economists. And, and we are currently in orbit around it. Zaphod, I can't help what you may personally be in orbit around, but this ship... Computer! Oh, no. Hi there, this is Eddie, your shipboard computer, and I'm feeling just great, guys. And I know I'm just going to get a bundle of kicks out of any program you care to run through me. Is this necessary? Computer, tell us again what our current trajectory is. A real pleasure, fella. We are currently in orbit at an altitude of 300 miles around the legendary planet of Magrathea. Golly. Proving nothing. I wouldn't trust that computer to speak my weight. I could do that for you, sure. No, thank you. I could even work out your personality problems to ten decimal places if it'll help. Zephod, we should have dawn coming up any minute now on the planet, whatever it turns out to be. Okay, okay, uh, let's just take a look at it. Computer. Hi there. What can I do just, for uh, you? Just shut up and give us external vision on the monitors. Trisha, I feel I may be missing the point of something. Hmm? Oh, well, Arthur, according to what Zaphod's told me, Magrathia is a legendary planet from way back, which no one seriously believes in. A bit like Atlantis, really. Oh, except that the legends say the Magratheans used to manufacture planets. Mm. Is there any tea on this spaceship? Arthur Dent had basically assumed that he was the only native ape-descended Earthman to escape from the planet Earth when it was unexpectedly demolished to make way for a new hyperspace bypass because his only companion disconcertingly called Ford Prefect, had already revealed himself to be from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Betelgeuse, and not from Guildford after all. So when, against all conceivable probability, they were suddenly rescued from certain death in deep space by a stolen starship manned by two people, one of whom is Ford's semi-brother, the infamous Zaphod Beeblebrox, and the other of whom is Tricia Macmillan, a rather nicely descended ape person that Arthur once met at a party in Islington, it could only be because the ship was powered by the new infinite improbability drive. Which, of course, it was. Slowly, majestically, this mighty starship begins its long descent towards the surface of the ancient planet, which might or might not be Magrathea. Well, even supposing it is, it is, which it isn't, what do you want with it anyway? I mean, I take it you're not here for the sheer industrial archaeology of it all. What is it you're after? Well, it's partly the curiosity, partly a sense of adventure. But mostly I think it's the fame and the money. It's just a dead planet. The suspense is killing me. Stress and nervous tension are now serious social problems in all parts of the galaxy, and it is in order that this situation should not be in any way exacerbated that the following facts will now be revealed in advance. The planet in question is, in fact, Magrathea. The deadly nuclear missile attack shortly to be launched by an ancient automatic defence system will merely result in the bruising of somebody's upper arm and the untimely creation and sudden demise of a bowl of petunias and an innocent sperm whale. In order that some sense of mystery should still be preserved, no revelation will yet be made concerning whose upper arm has been bruised. This fact may safely be made the subject of suspense since it is of no significance whatsoever. Arthur's next question about the planet is very complex and difficult. 
and Seyfert's answer is wrong in every important respect. Is it safe? Magrathia's been dead for five million years. Of course it's safe. Even the ghosts will have settled down and raised families by now. What's that voice? Computer? Hi there. What is it? Oh, just some five million year old tape recording that's being broadcast at us. This is a recorded announcement, and I'm afraid we're all out at the moment. The Commercial Council of Magrathia thanks you for your esteemed visit, but regrets that the entire planet is temporarily closed for business. Thank you. If you would like to leave your name at a planet where you can be contacted, kindly speak when you hear the tone. They want to get rid of us. What do we do? It's just a recording. Keep going. Got that computer? I got it. We would like to assure you that as soon as our business is resumed, announcements will be made in all fashionable magazines and colour supplements when our clients will once again be able to select from all that's best in contemporary geography. Meanwhile, we thank our clients for their kind interest and would ask them to leave now. Well, I suppose we'd better be going then, haven't we? There's absolutely nothing to be worried about. Then why is everyone so tense? They're just interested. We keep going. It is most gratifying that your enthusiasm for our planet continues unabated. And so we would like to assure you that the guided missiles currently converging with your ship are part of a special service we extend to all of our most enthusiastic clients. And the fully armed nuclear warheads are, of course, merely a courtesy detail. We look forward to your custom in future lives. Thank you. Listen, if that's their sales pitch, what must it be like in the complaints department? Hey, this is terrific. It means we really must be onto something if they're trying to kill us. Terrific? You mean there is someone down there after all? No, the whole defense system must be automatic, but the question is why? But what are we going to do? Just... Keep cool. Is that all? No, we're also going to take evasive action. Computer, what evasive action can we take? Uh, none, I'm afraid, guys. Or something? There seems to be something jamming my guidance systems. Impact minus 30 seconds. <coughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Please call me Eddie if it will help you relax. Right. Um, look, we've got to get manual control of this ship. Can you fly her? No, can you? No. Ford? No. Fine, we'll do it together. I can't either. I guess that. Computer, I want full manual control now. You got it. Good luck, guys. Impact minus 20 seconds. Okay, Ford. Full retro thrust and 10 degrees starboard. We're veering too fast. I can't hold her. She's going into a spin. Dive! Dive! It is, of course, more or less at this point that one of our heroes sustains a slight bruise to the upper arm. This should be emphasized because, as has already been revealed, they escape otherwise completely unharmed and the deadly nuclear missiles do not eventually hit the ship. Our hero's safety is absolutely assured. Impact minus 15 seconds, guys. The rockets are still homing in. You can't shake them. We're going to die. Shut that bloody computer up! Zaphod, can we stabilize at X00547 by splitting our flight path tangentially across the summit vector of 9GX78 with a 5 degree inertial correction? What? Uh, yes, I expect so. Just do it. And God forgive you, Sonny Brother. Here we go. Stuff like that, Going round Hyde Park Corner on a moped. What? Oh, it's another. Yeah, tell me later. It's 
Oh, good, the missiles are swinging round after us and gaining fast. We are quite definitely going to die. Though your dreams be tossed and blown, impact minus five seconds. Why does anyone turn on this improbability drive thing? Oh, don't be silly, you can't do that. Why not? There's nothing to lose at this stage. Well, because... Does anyone know why Arthur can't turn on the improbability drive? Impact minus one second. It's been great knowing you guys. God bless. I said, does anyone know? I was just saying, there's a switch here, you see. Where are we, Trillian? Exactly where we were, I think. Then what's happened to the missiles? Uh, Well, according to this screen, they've just turned into a bowl of petunias and a very surprised-looking whale. At an improbability factor of 8,767,128 to 1 against. Did you think of that, Earthman? Well, all I did was just... That's very good thinking, you know that? You just saved our lives. It was nothing, really. Oh, was it? Oh, well, forget it. Okay, computer... Take us into land. Well, I say it was nothing. I mean, obviously it was something. I was just trying to say it's not worth making too much of a fuss about. I mean, just saving everybody's life, you know? Another thing that no one made too much fuss about was the fact that against all probability, a sperm whale had suddenly been called into existence some miles above the surface of an alien planet. And since this is not a naturally tenable position for a whale, this innocent creature had very little time to come to terms with its identity as a whale before it had to come to terms with suddenly not being a whale anymore. This is what it thought as it fell. Oh, what's happening? Uh, Excuse me, who am I? Hello? Why am I here? What's my purpose in life? What do I mean by who am I? Now, calm down, get a bit now. This is an interesting sensation. What is it? It's a sort of yawning, tingling sensation in my... my. Well, I suppose I'd better start finding names and things if I want to make any headway in what, for the sake of what I shall call an argument, I shall call the world. So let's call it my stomach. So, a yawning, tingling sensation in my stomach. Good. Oh, it's getting quite strong. Hey, what about this whistling, roaring sound going past what I'm suddenly going to call my head? That can be wind. Is that a good name? Oh, it'll do. Perhaps I can find a better name for it later when I find out what it's for, because there certainly seems to be a hell of a lot of it. Hey, what's this thing? This, let's call it a tail. Yeah, tail. Hey, I can really thrash it about pretty good, can't I? Wow, wow. Hey, doesn't seem to achieve much, but I'll probably find out what it's for later on. Now, have I built up any coherent picture of things yet? No. Oh, hey, this is really exciting. So much to find out about, so much to look forward to. I'm quite dizzy with anticipation. Or is it the wind? Hey, there really is a lot of that now, isn't there? And wow, watch this thing suddenly coming towards me very fast. Very, very fast. So big and flat and wide. It is a big, wide-sounding word like ow, 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 round, round. Ground! That's it. Ground! I wonder if it'll be friends with me. Curiously enough, the only thing that went through the mind of the bowl of petunias as it fell was, oh no, not again. Many people have speculated that if we knew exactly why the bowl of petunias had thought that, 
we should know a lot more about the nature of the universe than we do now. Meanwhile, the starship has landed on the surface of Megrathia, and Trillian is about to make one of the most important statements of her life. Its importance is not immediately recognized by her companions. Hey, my white mice have escaped. Oh, nuts to your white mice. It is possible that Trillian's observation would have commanded greater attention had it been generally realized that human beings were only the third most intelligent life form on the planet Earth, instead of, as was generally thought by most independent observers, the second. Okay, run atmospheric checks on the planet. Are we taking this robot? Don't feel you have to take any notice of me, please. Oh, Marvin the paranoid android. Yeah, we'll take him. What are you supposed to do with a manically depressed robot? You think you've got problems? What are you supposed to do if you are a manically depressed robot? No, don't try and answer that. I'm 50,000 times more intelligent than you, and even I don't know the answer. Gives me a headache just trying to think down to your level. Well, what's the result? Okay, everybody, let's go. Good afternoon, boys. What's that? Oh, that, that's just the computer. I discovered it had an emergency backup personality, which I thought might be marginally preferable. Now, this is going to be your first day on a strange planet, so I want you all wrapped up, snug and warm, and no playing with any naughty, bug-eyed monsters. I'm sorry, I think we might have been better off with a slide rule. Right, who said that? Will you open up the exit hatch, please, computer? Not until whoever said that owns up. Oh, God. Come on. Computer. I'm waiting. I can wait all day if necessary. Computer, if you don't open that exit hatch this moment, I shall go straight to your major data banks with a very large axe and give you a reprogramming you'll never forget. Is that clear? I can see this relationship is something we're all going to have to work at. Thank you. Let's go. It'll all end in tears. I know it. Seyfod, are you sure you know what you're doing? We've been attacked once already, you know. Look, I promise you, the live population of this planet is nil plus the four of us. And two white mice. And two white mice, if you insist. Oh, come on. Let's go if we're going. Uh, hey, uh, Earthman. Arthur. Uh, could you sort of keep the robot with you and guard this end of the passageway, okay? Guard? What from? You just said there's no one here. Yeah, well, uh, just for safety, okay? Whose? Yours or mine? Yeah, good lad. Okay, here we go. Well, I hope you all have a really miserable time. Don't worry. They will. This is really spooky. Look at all this. Galleries of derelict equipment just lying about. Does anyone know what happened to this place in the end? I mean, why did the Magrathians die out? Something to do, I suppose. If I had two heads like you, Zephod, I could have hours of fun banging them against a wall. Hey, shine the torch over there. Where? Here? Well, we aren't the first beings to go down this corridor in five million years, then. What do you mean? Look. Fresh mouse droppings. Oh, your bloody mice. <gasps> What's that light down the corridor? It's just a torch reflection. There's definitely something happening down there. No. Listen. <laughs> the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a very unevenly edited book and contains many passages which simply seem to its editors like a good idea at the time. One of these supposedly relates the experiences of one Viet Vujagig, a quiet young student at the University of Meximegalon, 
who pursued a brilliant academic career studying ancient philology, transformational ethics, and the wave harmonic theory of historical perception, and then, after a night of drinking pan-galactic gargle blasters with Zephard Beeblebrox, became increasingly obsessed with the problem of what had happened to all the biros he'd bought over the past few years. There followed a long period of painstaking research, during which he visited all the major centres of biro loss throughout the galaxy and eventually came up with a rather quaint little theory which quite caught the public imagination at the time. Somewhere in the cosmos, he said, along with all the planets inhabited by humanoids, reptiloids, fishoids, walking treoids and superintelligent shades of the colour blue, there was also a planet entirely given over to biro life forms. And it was to this planet that unattended biros would make their way, slipping quietly through wormholes in space to a world where they knew they could enjoy a uniquely biroid lifestyle, responding to highly biro-orientated stimuli, in fact, leading the biro-equivalent of the good life. And as theories go, this was all very fine and pleasant until Viet Vujikig suddenly claimed to have found this planet and to have worked there for a while driving a limousine for a family of cheap green retractables, whereupon he was taken away, locked up, wrote a book, and was finally sent into tax exile, which is the usual fate reserved for those who are determined to make a fool of themselves in public. When one day an expedition was sent to the spatial coordinates that Vujigig had claimed for this planet, they discovered only a small asteroid inhabited by a solitary old man who claimed repeatedly that nothing was true, though he was later discovered to be lying. Meanwhile, on the surface of Magrathea, two suns have just set. Light's falling. Look, robot, the stars are coming out. I know. Wretched, isn't it? But that sunset, I've never seen anything like it in my wildest dreams. The two suns. It was like mountains of fire boiling into space. I've seen it. It's rubbish. We only ever had the one sun at home. I came from a planet called Earth, you know. I know. You keep going on about it. It sounds awful. Oh, no. It was a beautiful place. Did it have oceans? Oh, yes. Great, wide, rolling blue oceans. Can't bear oceans. Tell me, do you get on well with other robots? Hayden, where are you going? I just think I'll take a short walk. Don't blame you. Good evening. Ah, who... You choose a cold night to visit our dead planet? Who are you? My name is not important. I, um... You startled me. Do not be alarmed. I will not harm you. But you shot at us. There were missiles. Merely an automatic system. Ancient computers ranged in the long caves deep in the bowels of the planet tick away the dark millennia. I think they take the occasional pot shot to relieve the monotony. I'm a great fan of science, you know. Really? Oh, yes. Ah. You seem ill at ease. Yes, well, no disrespect, but I gathered you were all dead. Dead? No, we have but slept. Slept? Yes, through the economic recession, you see. What? Well, five million years ago, the galactic economy collapsed. And seeing that custom-built planets are something of a luxury commodity... You know we built planets, oh, do you? Well, yes, I, I'd sort of gathered. Fascinating trade. Doing the coastlines was always my favourite. Used to have endless fun doing all the little fiddly bits in fjords. Anyway, the recession came, so we decided to sleep through it. We just programmed the computers to revive us when it was all over. 
They were indexed linked to the galactic stock market prices, you see, so that we'd be revived when everybody else had rebuilt the economy enough to be able to afford our rather expensive services again. Good God, that's a pretty unpleasant way to behave, isn't it? Is it? I'm sorry, I'm a bit out of touch. You must come with me. Great things are afoot. You must come now or you will be late. Late? What for? What is your name, human? Dent. Arthur Dent. Late, as in the late Dent, Arthur Dent. It's a sort of threat, you see. Never been very good at them myself, but I'm told they could be terribly effective. All right, where do we go? In my air car, we are going deep into the bowels of the planet, where even now our race is being revived from its five million year slumber. Excuse me, what is your name, by the way? My name is... My name is Slarty Bartfast. <laughs> I beg your pardon? Slarty Bartfast. Slarty Bartfast? I said it wasn't important. It is an important and popular fact that things are not always what they seem. For instance, on the planet Earth, man had always assumed that he was more intelligent than dolphins because he had achieved so much, the Wheel, New York, Wars and so on, whilst all the dolphins had ever done was muck about in the water having a good time. But conversely, the dolphins believed that they were more intelligent than man for precisely the same reasons. Curiously enough, the dolphins had long known of the impending demolition of Earth and had made many attempts to alert mankind to the danger, but most of their communications were misinterpreted as amusing attempts to punch footballs or whistle for titbits, so they eventually gave up and left the Earth by their own means, shortly before the Vogons arrived. The last ever dolphin message was misinterpreted as a surprisingly sophisticated attempt to do a double backward somersault through a hoop whilst whistling the star-spangled banner. But in fact, the message was this, so long and thanks for all the fish. In fact, there was only one species on the planet more intelligent than dolphins, and they spent a lot of their time in behavioral research laboratories running round inside wheels and conducting frighteningly elegant and subtle experiments on man. Earthman, we are now deep in the heart of Magrathia. I should warn you that the chamber we are about to pass into does not literally exist within our planet. It is simply the gateway to a vast tract of hyperspace. It may disturb you. Oh, it scares the willies out of me. Hold tight. <laughs> Welcome to our factory floor. Uh, the light. This is where we make most of our planets, you see. Does this mean you're starting it all up again now? No, no, for heaven's sake. The galaxy isn't nearly rich enough to support us yet. No, we've been awakened to perform just one extraordinary commission. It may interest you. There, in the distance in front of us. Oh, no. You see? The Earth? Well, the Earth, Mark II, in fact. It seems that the first one was demolished five minutes too early and the most vital experiment was destroyed. There's been a terrible hoo-ha, and so we're going to make a copy from our original blueprints. You... Are you saying that you originally made the Earth? Oh, yes. Did you ever go to a place... I think it's called Norway. What? No. No, I didn't. It did. That was one of mine. Won an award, you know. Lovely, crinkly edges. I, I can't take this. Did I hear you say the Earth was destroyed five minutes too early? Shocking, cock-up. The mice were furious. Mice? Yes, the whole thing was their experiment, you see. 
a 10 million year research program to find the ultimate question. Big job, you know. Look, would it save you all this bother if I just gave up and went mad now? Has Slaty Bartfast flipped his lid? Are Ford, Zephod and Trillian dying in fearful agony? Or have they simply slipped out for a quick meal somewhere? Will Arthur Dent feel better with a good hot drink inside him? Find out in next week's exciting instalment of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In that episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Peter Jones was the book. Richard Vernon was Slarty Bartfast, Simon Jones played Arthur Dent, and Geoffrey McGiven, Ford Prefect. Stephen Moore was Marvin, Mark Wing Davy, Zaphod Beeblebrox, Susan Sheridan, Trillian, and David Tate, Computer. The programme was written by Douglas Adams and produced by Geoffrey Perkins, with the assistance of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Zaphod Beeblebrox is now appearing in No Sex, Please, We're Amoeboid Zingatularians at the Brantus Vogan Starhouse. I'm sorry, but I'd probably be able to cope better if I hadn't bruised my arm. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, starring Peter Jones as The Book. Arthur Dent, a perfectly ordinary Earthman, was rather surprised when his friend Ford Prefect suddenly revealed himself to be from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Betelgeuse, and not from Guildford after all. He was even more surprised when a few minutes later the Earth was unexpectedly demolished to make way for a new hyperspace bypass. But this was as nothing to their joint surprise when they are rescued from certain death by a stolen spaceship manned by Ford's semi-cousin, the infamous Zephod Beeblebrox, and Trillian, a rather nice astrophysicist Arthur once met at a party in Islington. However, all four of them are soon totally overwhelmed with surprise when they discover that the ancient world of Magrathea, a planet famed in legend for its surprising trade in manufacturing other planets, is not as dead as it was supposed to be. For Zephod, Ford and Trillian, surprise is pushed to its very limits when this happens. And when Arthur Dent encounters Slarty Bartfast, the Magrathian coastline designer, who won an award for his work on Norway, and learns that the whole history of mankind was run for the benefit of a few white mice anyway, surprise is no longer adequate, and he is forced to resort to astonishment. Mice? What do you mean, mice? I think we must be talking across purposes. 
Mice to me mean the little white furry things with the cheese fixation and women standing screaming on tables in early 60s sitcoms. Earthman, it is sometimes hard to follow your mode of speech. Remember, I have been asleep inside this planet of Magrathia for five million years and know little of these early 60s sitcoms of which you speak. These creatures you call mice, you see, are not quite as they appear. They are merely the protrusions into our dimension of vast, hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional beings. The whole business with the cheese and the squeaking is just a front. A front? Oh, yes. You see, the mice set up the whole Earth business as an epic experiment in behavioural psychology, a ten-million-year programme. Oh, no, look, you've got it the wrong way round. It was us. We used to do the experiments on them. A ten-million-year programme in which your planet Earth and its people formed the matrix of an organic computer. I gather that the mice did arrange for you humans to conduct some primitively staged experiments on them, just to check how much you really learned to give you the odd prod in the right direction, you know, the sort of thing, suddenly running down the maze the wrong way, eating the wrong bit of cheese, or unexpectedly dropping dead of myxomatosis. Attention, please. Slotty bark fast. Would slotty bark fast in the visiting Earth creature. Please report immediately to the works reception area. Thank you. However, in the field of management relations, they're absolutely shocking. Really? Yes, well, you see, every time they give me an order, I just want to jump on a table and scream. I can see that would be a problem. There are, of course, many problems connected with life, of which some of the most popular are why are people born, why do they die, and why do they spend so much of the intervening time wearing digital watches. Many millions of years ago, a race of hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings got so fed up with all the constant bickering about the meaning of life which used to interrupt their favourite pastime of Brocky and Ultra Cricket, a curious game which involved suddenly hitting people for no readily apparent reason and running away, that they decided to sit down and solve the problem once and for all. And to this end, they built themselves a stupendous supercomputer which was so amazingly intelligent that even before its data banks had been connected up, it had started from first principles with I think, therefore I am, and had got as far as deducing the existence of rice pudding and income tax before anyone managed to turn it off. Could a mere computer solve the problem of life, the universe, and everything? Fortunately for posterity, there exists a tape recording of what transpired when the computer was given this particularly monumental task. Arthur Dent stops off in Slotty Bartfast's study to hear it. What is this great task for which I, deep thought, the second greatest computer in the universe of time and space, have been called into existence? Uh, well, your task, O oh computer, uh, no, is to calculate. Uh, this isn't right. Deep thought. Speak, and I will hear. Are you not as we designed you to be, the greatest, most powerful computer in all creation? I described myself as the second greatest, and such I am. But, but, but this is preposterous. Are, are you not a greater computer than the milliard gargantu brain at Maximegalon, which can count all the atoms in a star in a millisecond? The milliard gargantu brain? A mere abacus. Mention it not. And are you not a more fiendish disputant than a great hyperlobic omnicognate neutron wrangler which the can destroy... The great hyperlobic omnicognate neutron wrangler can talk all four legs of an Arcturan megadonkey, but only I can persuade it to go for a walk afterwards. Molest me not with this pocket calculator stuff. Then what's the problem? I speak of none. 
but the computer that is to come after me. Oh, come on. I think this is getting needlessly messianic. You know nothing of future time. And yet, in my teeming secretary, I can navigate the infinite delta streams of future probability and see that there must one day come a computer whose merest operational parameters I am not worthy to calculate, but which it will be my destiny eventually to design. Can we get on and ask the question? Oh, deep thought, computer. The task we have designed you to perform is this. We want you to tell us the answer. The answer? The answer to what? Life! The universe! Everything! Tricky. But can you do it? Yes, I can do it. You can! There, there is an answer? A simple answer? Yes. Life, the universe, and everything. There is an answer. But I'll have to think about it. We demand that you can't keep us well, out. Who are you? Uh, what do you want? Well, we're busy. I am Magic Thighs. And I demand that I am Broomvondel. I don't need to demand that. All right. I am Broomvondel. And that is not a demand. That is a solid fact. What we demand is solid facts. No, we don't. That's precisely what we don't demand. Oh. We don't demand solid facts. What we demand is a total absence of solid facts. I demand that I may or may not be Broomfondle. Who are you, anyway? We are philosophers. Though we may not be. Yes, we are. Oh, sorry, yeah. We are quite definitely here as representatives of the amalgamated union of philosophers, sages, luminaries, and other professional thinking persons. Mm -hmm. And we want this machine off, and we want it off now. What is all We this? demand that you get rid of it. Oh, what's the problem? I'll tell you what the problem is, mate. Demarcation, that's the problem. We demand that demarcation may or may not be the problem. You just let the machines get on with the adding up and we'll take care of the eternal verities, thank you very much. Yeah. By law, the quest for the ultimate truth is quite clearly the unalienable prerogative of your working fingers. That's right. I mean, what's the use of our sitting up all night saying there may... Or may not be. Or may not be a god if this machine comes along next morning and gives you his telephone number. We demand rigidly defined areas of doubt and uncertainty. My time may... Make an observation at this point. You keep out of this metal nose. We demand that that machine not be allowed to think about this problem. If I might make an observation. We'll go on strike. That's right. You'll have a national philosopher's strike on your hands. Who will that inconvenience? Never you mind who it'll inconvenience, you box of black-legging binary bits. It'll hurt, Buster. It'll hurt. If I might make an observation. All I want to say that my circuits are now irrevocably committed to computing the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Ah, but the program will take me seven and a half million years to run. Seven and a half million years? Yes, I said I'd have to think about it, didn't I? And it occurs to me that running a program like this is bound to cause sensational public interest. Okay, and so, and so, any philosophers who are quick off the mark are going to clean up in the prediction business. Prediction business? Obviously. 
You just get on the pundit circuit. You all go on the chat shows and the color supplements and violently disagree with each other about what answer I'm eventually going to produce. And if you get yourselves clever agents, you'll be on the gravy train for life. Bloody hell, now, that's what I call thinking. Here, Vroom Fondle, why do we never think of things like that? Dunno. Think our minds must be too highly trained, magic thighs. But I don't understand what all this has got to do with the Earth and mice and things. All will become clear to you, Earthman. Are you not anxious to hear what the computer had to say seven and a half million years later? Oh, well, yes, of course. Quite. Here is the recording of the events of that fateful day. People who wait in the shadow of deep thought, honored descendants of Room Fondle and Magic Thighs, the greatest and most truly interesting pundits the universe has ever known, the time of waiting is over. Seven and a half million years our race has waited for this great and hopefully enlightening day, the day of the answer. Never again will we wake up in the morning and think, who am I? What is my purpose in life? Does it really, cosmically speaking, matter if I don't get up and go to work? Or today we will finally learn, once and for all, the plain and simple answer to all these nagging little problems of life, the universe, and everything. can enjoy our game of Brockian ultra cricket in the firm and comfortable knowledge that the meaning of life is now well and truly sorted out. 75,000 generations ago, our ancestors set this program in motion. An awesome prospect. <clears throat> Deep thought prepares to speak. Good evening. Good evening, uh, old Deep Thought. Uh, uh, do you have um, an answer for you? Yes. Yes, I have. There really is one. There really is one. Uh, to everything? To the great question of life, the universe, and everything? Yes. And are you ready to give it to us? I am. Now? Now. Wow. Though I don't think you're going to like it. It doesn't matter. We, we must know it. Now? Yes, now. All right. Oh, well? You're really not going to like it. Tell us. All right. The answer to everything. Yes? Life, the universe, and everything. Yes? Is. Yes? Is. Yes? 42. We are going hmm? to get lynched, you know that. It was a tough assignment. Forty-two? I think the problem suckers at Mars was too broadly based. You never actually stated what the question was. Well, it was the ultimate question, the question of life, the universe, and everything. Exactly. Now you know that the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything is forty-two. 
All you need to do now is find out what the ultimate question is. All right. All right. Can you please tell us the question? The ultimate question. Yes. Of life, the universe, and everything. And everything. Yes. But can you do it? No. Oh, God. But I'll tell you who can. Who? Tell us. Tell us. Who is it? I speak of none but the computer that is to come after me. What computer? A computer whose nearest operational parameters I am not worthy to calculate, and yet I will design it for you. A computer which can calculate the question to the ultimate answer. A computer of such infinite and subtle complexity that organic life itself will form part of its operational matrix. And it shall be called the Earth. Oh, what a dull name. So there you have it. Deep Thought designed it, we built it, and you lived on it. And the Vogons came and destroyed it five minutes before the program was completed. Yes. Ten million years of planning and work gone. Just like that. Well, that's bureaucracy for you. You know, all this explains a lot of things. All through my life, I've had this strange, unaccountable feeling that something was going on in the world. And no one would tell me what it was. No, that's just perfectly normal paranoia. Everyone in the universe has that. Oh, well, perhaps it means that somewhere outside... Maybe. We... Who cares? Perhaps I'm old and tired, but I always think that the chances of finding out what really is going on are so absurdly remote that the only thing to do is to say, hang the sense of it and just keep yourself occupied. Look at me. I design coastlines. I got an award for Norway. Where's the sense in that? None that I've been able to make out. I've been doing fjords all my life. For a fleeting moment, they become fashionable, and I get a major award. In this replacement earth we're building, they've given me Africa to do, and, of course, I'm doing it with all fjords again, because I happen to like them. And I'm old-fashioned enough to think that they give a lovely baroque feel to a continent. And they tell me it's not equatorial enough. What does it matter? Science has achieved some wonderful things, of course, but I'd far rather be happy than right any day. And are you? No. That's where it all falls down, of course. Pity. It sounded like quite a good lifestyle otherwise. Attention, please, slotty but fast. Would slotty but fast and the visiting Earth creature please report immediately. Repeat immediately to the works reception area. Come on, you guys. The mice aren't one to hang about in this dimension all day. Come on, I suppose we'd better go and see what they want. I seem to be having this tremendous difficulty with my lifestyle. As soon as I reach some kind of definite policy about what is my kind of music and my kind of restaurant and my kind of overdraft, people start blowing up my kind of planet and throwing me out of their kind of spaceships. It's so hard to build up anything coherent. Oh, I'm sorry. All this must sound rather fatuous to you. Yes, I thought so. Mm, just forget I ever said it. It is, of course, well known that careless talk costs lives, but the full scale of the problem is not always appreciated. For instance, at the very moment that Arthur Dent said, 
I seem to be having this tremendous difficulty with my lifestyle. A freak wormhole opened up in the fabric of the space-time continuum and carried his words far, far back in time across almost infinite reaches of space to a distant galaxy where strange and warlike beings were poised on the brink of frightful interstellar battle. The two opposing leaders were meeting for the last time and a dreadful silence fell across the conference table as the commander of the Vlahergs, resplendent in his black jeweled battle shorts, gazed levelly at their Gagogvant leader squatting opposite him in a cloud of green sweet-smelling steam and with a million sleek and horribly beweaponed star cruisers poised to unleash electric death at his single word of command challenged the vile creature to take back what it had said about his mother. The creature stirred in his sickly broiling vapour, and at that very moment, the words, I seem to be having this tremendous difficulty with my lifestyle, drifted across the conference table. Unfortunately, in the Vlaherg tongue, this was the most dreadful insult imaginable, and there was nothing for it but to wage terrible war. Eventually, of course, it was realized that the whole thing had been a ghastly mistake, and so the two opposing battle fleets settled their few remaining differences in order to launch a joint attack on our galaxy, now positively identified as the source of the offending remark. For thousands more years, the mighty ships tore across the empty wastes of space and finally dived screaming onto the planet Earth, where... Due to a terrible miscalculation of scale, the entire battle fleet was accidentally swallowed by a small dog. Those who study the complex interplay of cause and effect in the history of the universe say that this sort of thing is going on all the time, but are powerless to prevent it. It's just life, they say. Meanwhile, Arthur Dent is about to discover the answer to the disturbing question posed in last week's instalment. Are his companions, Ford, Zephod and Trillian, lying bleeding to death in a subterranean corridor? Or have they merely slipped out for a quick meal somewhere? Arthur, you're safe. Am I? Oh, good. Hi, Arthur. Come and join us. What happened to you? Uh, well, our hosts here sort of uh, attacked us with a fantastic uh, dismodulating anti-phase stunray and then invited us to this amazingly keen meal by way of making it up to us. Hosts? What hosts? I can't see any hosts. Welcome to lunch, Earth Creature. What? Who said that? Oh, there, there's a mouse on the table. Oh, haven't you found out yet, Arthur? Found out what? Uh, oh! Oh, I see, yes. Oh, yes. I, I just wasn't quite prepared for the full reality of it. Arthur, let me introduce you. This is Benji Mouse. Hi. Hi. And this is Frankie uh, Mouse. Nice to meet you. It yes. seems they control quite a large sector of the universe in our dimension. But aren't they... Yes, they are the mice I took with me from the Earth. It seems our whole journey has been stage-managed from the beginning. Uh, excuse me. Yes, thank you, Fast. You may go. Oh, oh. Very well, thank you, sir. I'll, I'll just go and get on with some of my fjords, then. Uh, in fact, that won't be necessary. What? We won't be requiring the new Earth after all. We've had this rather interesting proposition put to us. You can't mean that. I've got a thousand glaciers poised and ready to roll over Africa. Well, perhaps you can take a quick skiing holiday before you dismantle them. Skiing holiday? Those glaciers are works of art. Elegantly sculpted contours, soaring pinnacles of ice, deep, majestic ravines. It would be sacrilege to go skiing on high art. Thank you, Slarty Bartfast. 
That will be all. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Well, goodbye, Earthman. I hope the lifestyle comes together. Goodbye, then. Sorry about the fjords. Now, Earth creature, we have, as you know, been more or less running your planet for the last ten million years in order to find this wretched thing called the ultimate question. Why? No, we already thought of that one, but it doesn't fit the answer. No, I mean, why have you been doing it? Oh, uh, well, eventually just habit, I think, to be brutally honest. And this is more or less the point. We are sick to the teeth of the whole thing and the prospect of doing it all over again on account of those winnet-ridden bogons quite frankly gives me the screaming heebie-jeebies. You know what I mean? Uh, we've been offered a quite enormously fat contract to do the 5D TV chat show and lecture circuit, and I'm very much inclined to take it. I would, wouldn't you, Ford? Oh, yes, jump at it like a shot. But that's exactly the attitude those philosophers took. Does no one in this galaxy do anything other than appear on chat shows? The point is this. We are in a position to give you a very important commission. We still want to find the ultimate question because it gives us a lot of bargaining muscle with the 5D TV companies. So it's worth a lot of money. <laughs> uh, quite clearly, if we're sitting there in the studio mentioning that we happen to know the answer to life, the universe and everything, and then eventually have to admit that it's 42, then I think the show is probably quite short. Yes, but doesn't that mean you've got to go through your whole 10 million year program again? We think there might be a shortcut. Your agent has... Uh, that's me. Is it? Your agent has suggested that both you and Earth Girl, as last-generation products of the computer matrix, are probably in an ideal position to find the question for us and find it quickly. Go out and find it and we'll make you a reasonably rich man. We're holding out for extremely rich. All right, extremely rich. You drive a hard bargain, Beeble Blocks. Hells bells, what is it now? Emergency, emergency, hospital ship has landed on planet. Intruders now in works reception area. Defense stations, defense stations. Come on, you guys, what are you nuts? Get out of there. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Oh, police. Hell and bats doom, we've got to get out. Police? Yeah, it's this, uh, it's this wretched spacecraft we stole, and I left them a note explaining how they could make a profit on the insurance claim, but it doesn't seem to have worked. Oh, come on, then, let's move it. How? Uh, no. That doesn't work either. We will find it. Come on, get out of here. Uh, thanks for the meal, guys. Sorry we've got to run. Which way, Seyfold? At a while, I guess I'd say, uh, down here. Okay, right, right. let's go. Okay, people, Brooks. Hold it right there. We've got you covered. You want to try and guess at all, for? Uh, okay, okay, this way. Yeah, all right. Okay, let's go. Drop my adrenaline pills, all right. Uh, behind this computer bank. Get down. Hey, they're shooting at us. Yeah. I thought they said they didn't want to do that. Yeah, I thought they said that. Hey, I thought you said you didn't want to shoot us. It isn't easy being a cop. What did he say? He said it isn't easy being a cop. Well, surely that's his problem, isn't it? I'd have thought so. Uh, uh, hey, listen, I, I think we've got enough problems of our own with you shooting at us, so if you could avoid laying your personal problems on us as well, I think we'd probably find it easier to cope. Now, see here, buddy. You're not dealing with any dumb, two-bit trigger-pumping morons with low hairlines, little piggy eyes, and no conversation. Nah. We're a couple of intelligent, caring guys, so you'd probably like if you met us socially. That's right, I'm really sensitive. I don't go around gratuitously shooting people and bragging about it in CD Space Rangers bars. I go around gratuitously shooting people and then 
Really been been great, and it was really nice bumping into you again. Yeah. So uh, hey, uh, the computer bank is absorbing a hell of a lot of energy. I think it's about to blow. It's a shame we never managed to get the work done revising the book. I thought it looked rather promising. Yeah. What book? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, that thing. Look, I hate to say this, lads, but this thing really is going to blow up. Okay. Assuming our heroes survive this latest reversal in their fortunes, will they find somewhere reasonably interesting to go now? Will Arthur Dent or Trillian manage to find the question to the ultimate answer? Who will they meet at the restaurant at the end of the universe? Find out in next week's exciting instalment of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. In that episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Peter Jones was the book, Richard Vernon was slightly Bartfast, Simon Jones played Arthur Dent, Geoffrey McGiven, Ford Prefect and Deep Thought, Mark Wing Davies, Zephod Beeblebrox, Susan Sheridan, Trillian, Jonathan Adams, Magic Thighs and the Cheerleader, Ray Hassett, the first computer programmer, Bang Bang and PA Voice, Jeremy Brown, second computer programmer, James Broadbent, Room Fondle and Shooty, Peter Hawkins, Frankie Mouse and David Tate, Benji Mouse. The ultimate answer to life, the universe and everything was revealed by kind permission of the Amalgamated Union of Philosophers, Sages, Luminaries and other professional thinking persons. The programme was written by Douglas Adams and produced by Geoffrey Perkins with the assistance of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, starring Peter Jones as The Book. 
the story so far. In the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and been widely regarded as a bad move. Many races believe that it was created by some sort of god, though the Jatravatid people of Viltvodal VI firmly believe that the entire universe was, in fact, sneezed out of the nose of a being called the Great Green Arkle Seizure. The Jatravatids, who live in perpetual fear of the time they call the coming of the Great White Handkerchief, are small blue creatures with more than 50 arms each who are therefore unique in being the only race in history to have invented the aerosol deodorant before the wheel. However, the great green seizure theory was not widely accepted outside Viltvotl VI, and so one day a race of hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional beings built themselves a gigantic supercomputer called Deep Thought, to calculate once and for all the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. For seven and a half million years, Deep Thought computed and calculated and eventually announced that the answer was, in fact, 42. And so another, even bigger computer had to be built to find out what the actual question was. And this computer, which was called the Earth, was so large that it was frequently mistaken for a planet particularly by the strange ape-like beings who roamed its surface, totally unaware that they were simply part of a gigantic computer program. And this is very odd, because without that fairly simple and obvious piece of knowledge, nothing that ever happened on Earth could possibly make the slightest bit of sense. However, at the critical moment of readout, the Earth was unexpectedly demolished to make way for a new hyperspace bypass, and the only hope of finding the ultimate question now lies buried deep in the minds of Arthur Dent and Trillian, the only native Earth people to have survived the demolition. Unfortunately, they and their strange companions from Betelgeuse are at the moment being shot at behind a computer bank on the lost planet of Magrathea. This is what the computer bank is about to do. And the time at which it is going to do it is 20 seconds from now. The computer bank is absorbing a hell of a lot of energy. I think it's about to blow. It's a shame we never managed to get the work done revising the book. I thought it looked rather promising. Yeah. What book? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, that thing. Look, I hate to say this, lads, but this thing really is going to blow up. Okay, okay. A reservation. Oh, reservation? Yes, sir. You need a reservation for the afterlife? The afterlife, sir? This is the afterlife. Well, I assume so. I mean, there's no way we could have survived that blast, is there? No. None at all. I certainly didn't survive. I was a total goner. I was Wham, dead, bang, too. And that was it. I mean, we didn't stand a chance. We must have been blown to bits. Arms, legs, everywhere. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> if you would care to order drinks, I'll show you. Oh, splat! Sir? Uh, here we are. Yeah. Uh, lying dead. Standing. Uh, standing dead in this uh, desolate restaurant. Standing dead in this Five star. restaurant. Bit odd, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Nice chandeliers, though. Mm. It's not so much an afterlife, more a sort of après-vie. Hey, hang about. I think we're missing something important here, something that somebody just said. About the chandeliers? No, something really important. Hey, 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 uh, you. 
Sir? Did you say something about drinks? Certainly, sir. If the lady or the gentleman would care to take drinks before dinner... Yeah, great! <laughs> and the universe will explode later for your pleasure. Hey, wow, what sort of drinks do you serve here? <laughs> I think, sir, has perhaps misunderstood me. Oh, I hope not. It is not unusual for our customers to be a little disorientated by the time journey. Time, so if what? I might time suggest... journey? You mean this isn't the afterlife? Afterlife, sir? No, sir. And we're not dead? <laughs> no, sir. Sir is most evidently alive. Otherwise, I would not attempt to serve, sir. Then where the photon are we? Hey, 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 hey. I've sussed it. What? what? This must be Milliways. Milliways? Yes, Milliways. The restaurant at the end of the universe. End of what? The universe. When did that end? In just a few minutes. Um, now, if you would care to order drinks, I'll show you to your table. The restaurant at the end of the universe is one of the most extraordinary ventures in the entire history of catering. A vast time bubble has been projected into the future to the precise moment of the end of the universe. This is, of course, impossible. In it, guests take their places at table and eat sumptuous meals whilst watching the whole of creation explode about them. This is, of course, impossible. You can arrive for any sitting you like without prior reservation because you can book retrospectively, as it were, when you return to your own time. This is, of course, impossible. At the restaurant, you can meet and dine with a fascinating cross-section of the entire population of space and time. This is, of course, impossible. You can visit it as many times as you like and be sure of never meeting yourself because of the embarrassment that usually causes. This is, of course, impossible. All you have to do is deposit one penny in a savings account in your own era and when you arrive at the end of time, the operation of compound interest means that the fabulous cost of your meal has been paid for. This is, of course, impossible. Which is why the advertising executives of the star system of Bastablon came up with this slogan. If you've done six impossible things this morning, why not round it off with breakfast at Milliways, the restaurant at the end of the universe? Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, friends, welcome to the restaurant at the end of the universe. I am your host for tonight, Max Quartelpleen, and I've just come straight from the very, very, very other end of time, where I've been hosting a show at the Big Bang Burger Chef, where we had a real way of an evening, ladies and gentlemen. You know what I mean. And I will be with you throughout this tremendous historic occasion, the end of history itself. I just want you to think about that, ladies and gentlemen, friends. Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, take your places at table. The candles are lit, the band is playing. And... What, madam? Uh, yes, it's uh, down the corridor, the second door. And as the force-shielded dome above us fades into transparency, revealing a dark and sullen sky, hung heavy with the ancient light of livid swollen stars, I... That I can see, friends, we're in for a fabulous evening's apocalypse. Thank you very much. But look, Ford, 
Surely, if the universe is about to end here and now, don't we go with it? Oh, no, 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 look. I mean, as soon as you come into this dive, I think you get held in this sort of amazing force-shielded temporal warp thing. Mm -hmm. Look, look, I'll show you. Now, imagine this napkin, right, as the temporal universe, right? And, and, and this spoon as a transductional mode in the matter curve. Well, that's the spoon I was eating with. Oh, all right, imagine, imagine this spoon is the, is the transductional mode in the matter curve. No, no, better still, this fork. Hey, could you let go of my fork, please? Well, look, 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 why don't we say this one glass is the temporal universe so if I sort of yeah well forget that I mean do you know how the universe began for a kickoff yeah probably not well all right imagine this you get a large round bath made of ebony where from Harrods was destroyed by the Vogons well, it doesn't matter so you keep saying no no listen just imagine that you've got this ebony bath right and it's conical conical Oh, no, no, shh, shh, it's, it's, it's conical, okay? So what you do, you fill it with fine white sand, right? Or sugar, or anything like that. And when it's full, you pull the plug out, and it all just twirls down out of the plug hole. Why? But the thing is, no, the clever thing is, is that you film it happening. You get a movie camera from somewhere and actually film it. But then you thread the film in the projector backwards. Backwards? Yeah, neat, you see. So what happens is you sit and you watch it, and then everything appears to spiral upwards out of the plug hole and fill the bath. Amazing. And that's how the universe began? No, but it's a marvellous way to relax. Funny man. Well, broke the ice, didn't it? Now, as the photon storms gather in the swirling clouds around us, preparing to tear apart the last of the red hot, hot suns, <laughs> I hope you'll all settle back and enjoy with me what I'm sure we will all find an immensely exciting and terminal experience. Believe me, ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing penultimate about this one, you know what I mean? <laughs> this, ladies and gentlemen, is the proverbial it. Thank you, thank you. And out of this, there is void. Absolute nothing. Except, of course, for the sweet trolley and our fine selection of Adelbaran liqueurs. And now, at the risk of putting a damper on the wonderful sense of doom and futility here, well, I'd like to welcome a few parties. Now, do we have a party here? Do we have a party here from the Zanzo Quasar Flamorian Bridge Club from beyond the vert void of Quarn? Are they here? Yes. Oh, that's wonderful, waving their quarn streamers in the air. Good, jolly good. And a party of minor deities from the halls of Asgard. Oh. Ouch, that hurt. Still, we're all friends of the end of the universe. Now, do we have here a party of young conservatives from Sirius B? <laughs> Yes, yes, we do. And lastly, a party of devout believers from the Church of the Second Coming of the Great Prophet Zarquan. Well, fellas, let's hope he's hurrying because he's only got eight minutes left. <laughs> no, but, <clears throat> seriously, though, no. Seriously, no, please, please. I mean, no offense, man, because I know we shouldn't make fun of deeply held beliefs. So I think a big hand, please, for the Great Prophet Zarquan wherever he's got to. I just want to say how marvelous it is to see how many of you come here time and time again uh, as the final me, Who, me? Mr. Zephod Beeblebox. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, there is a phone call for you. Hey, what? Here? Hey, hey, hey but who, who knows where I am? Zephod, perhaps it's the police. 
could they have traced us here? You mean they want to arrest me over the phone? Could be. I'm a pretty dangerous dude when I'm cornered. Oh, yeah, you get a piece of so fast that people get hit by the shrapnel. I am not personally acquainted with the metal gentleman in question. So metal? I'm... But I'm informed that he has been awaiting your return for a considerable number of millennia. It seems you left here somewhat precipitately. Hey, left here? We've only just arrived. Indeed, sir. But before you arrived here, sir, you left here. You're saying that before we arrived here, we left here? That is what I said, sir. Put your analyst on danger money, baby. Now. No, no, no. Wait a minute. Where exactly is here? The planet Magrathia, sir. But we just left there. This is the restaurant at the end of the universe, I thought. Precisely, sir. The one was constructed on the ruins of the other. Ah, you mean we've travelled in time, but not in space. Listen, you semi-evolved simian, go climb a tree, won't you? Oh, go and bang your heads together, four eyes. No, no, your monkey has got it right, sir. Who are you calling a monkey? You jumped forwards in time many millions of years while retaining the same position in space. Your friend has been waiting for you in the meantime. Well, what's he been doing all the time? Rusting a little, sir? Marvin! It must be Marvin! The paranoid android! Space cookies! Oh, hand me the rap rod plate, Captain. Pardon, sir? Pass the phone, waiter. <laughs> you guys are so unhip, it's a wonder your bums don't fall off. Ah, uh, what, sir? The phone, sir. Marvin! Hi, how you doing, kid? Hey, yeah? Oh, we're having a great time. Food, wine, a little personal abuse, and the universe going foom. Where can we find you? You don't have to pretend to be interested in me, you know. I know perfectly well I'm only a menial robot. Yeah, okay, okay, but uh, where are you? Reverse primary thrust, Marvin. That's what they say to me. Open airlock yeah. number mm. three, Marvin. Marvin, Fine. can you pick up that piece of paper? Yeah, can okay, I've got that. Pick up that piece of paper. Here yeah. I am, brain the size of a... Yeah, pit. yeah, uh... uh Oh, nothing. He just phoned up to wash his head at us. Has that satisfied you? Will you please tell us where you are? I'm in the car park. In the car park? What are you doing there? Parking cars. What else do yeah, well, you do? Well, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, stay there. Come on, guys, let's go. Marvin's down in the car park. The car park? What's he doing in the car park? Parking cars. What else, dum-dum? Oh. Hey, fool, come on, Trillian, let's move. What about my pants Columbia? Marvin, hey kid, are we pleased to see you? No, you're not. No one ever is. Suit yourself. No, really, Marvin, we are quite hanging around, waiting for us all this time. The first ten million years were the worst, and the second ten million, they were the worst too. The third ten million, I didn't enjoy at all. After that, I went into a bit of a decline. Hey, Safe, come and have a look at some of these neat star trolleys. Look at this baby, Zaphod. I mean, the tangerine star buggy with the black sun must. Hey, get this number. Multi-cluster cork drive and Perspulex running boards. Mm. This has got to be a Lazla Lyrican custom job. Oh. Look, the infrapink lizard emblem on the neutrino car. Oh, yes, and I was passed by one of these mothers once out near the Axel Nebula. Right. I was going flat out, and this thing just strolled past me. Star drive hardly ticking over. Just incredible. Too much. Oh, ten seconds later, it smashed straight into the third moon of Jaglum Beta. Hey, right? Yeah, but a great-looking ship there. Looks like a fish, moves like a fish, steers like a cow. No kidding. No. Oh, 
Wait a minute, wait a minute. That one there. Hey, hey. Now that is really bad for the eyes. It is so black you can hardly even make out its shape. Light just falls into it. And feel this surface. Yeah. Hey, hey, you can't. See? It's just totally frictionless. Oh, this must be one mother of a mover. I bet even the cigar light is on photon drive. Well, what do you reckon, Ford? What? You mean... Stroll off with it. I mean, do you think we should? No. Let's do it. Okay. We better shift soon. In a few seconds, the universe will end and all the captain creeps will be pouring down here to find their Borgmobiles. Zephon. Yeah? How do we get into it? Just don't spoil a beautiful idea, will you, Ford? Perhaps the robot can figure something out. Yeah. Hey, Marvin, uh, come on over. We've got a job for you. I won't enjoy it. Oh, yes, you will. There's a whole new life stretching out in front of you. Oh, not another one. Will you shut up and listen? This time there's going to be excitement and adventure and really wild things. Sounds awful. Marvin, all I'm trying to say... I suppose is... you want me to open this spaceship for Marvin, you. Marvin, just listen, will you? What? I suppose you want me to open this spaceship for you. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that'd, that'd be... Uh... Well, I wish you'd just tell me rather than trying to engage my enthusiasm because I haven't got one. How'd you do that, Marvin? Didn't I tell you I've got a brain the size of a planet? No one ever listens to me, of course. Shut up, Marvin. See what I mean? Hey, Zaphon, look at this. Look at the interior of this ship. Hey, weird. I mean, it's black. Everything in it is just totally black. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the moment you've all been waiting for. The skies begin to boil. Nature collapses into a screaming void. In five seconds' time, the universe itself will be at an end. See, friends, see where the light of infinity bursts in upon us. What, what's happening here? Who's this? I don't believe it. A big hand, please, for the great prophet Zarquan. Hello, everybody. I'm sorry, I'm a bit late. Had a terrible time. All sorts of things cropping up at the last moment. Uh, how are we for time? Um... So the universe ended. One of the major selling points of that wholly remarkable book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, apart from its relative cheapness and the fact that it has the words Don't Panic written in large, friendly letters on the cover, is its compendious and occasionally accurate glossary. For instance, the statistics relating to the geosocial nature of the universe are all deftly set out between pages 576,324 and 576,326. The simplistic style is partly explained by the fact that its editors, having to meet a publishing deadline, copied the information off the back of a packet of breakfast cereal, hastily embroidering it with a few footnotes in order to avoid prosecution under the incomprehensibly tortuous galactic copyright laws. 
It's interesting to note that a later and wilier editor sent the book backwards in time through a temporal warp and then successfully sued the breakfast cereal company for infringement of the same laws. Here is a sample in both headings and footnotes. The universe. Some information to help you live in it. One, area, infinite. As far as anyone can make out. Two, imports, none. It's impossible to import things into an infinite area, there being no outside to import things in from. Three, exports, none. See imports. Four, rainfall, none. Rain cannot fall because in an infinite space there is no up for it to fall down from. Five, population, none. It is known that there are an infinite number of worlds, but that not everyone is inhabited. Therefore, there must be a finite number of inhabited worlds. Any finite number divided by infinity is as near to nothing as makes no odds. So, if every planet in the universe has a population of zero, then the entire population of the universe must also be zero. And any people you may actually meet from time to time are merely the products of a deranged imagination. Six. Monetary units, none. In fact, there are three freely convertible currencies in the universe, but the Altarian dollar has recently collapsed, the Flanian pobble bead is only exchangeable for other Flanian pobble beads, and the Triganic pew doesn't really count as money. Its exchange rate of six ningis to one pew is simple, but since a ningi is a triangular rubber coin 6,800 miles long each side, no one has ever collected enough to own one pew. Ningis are not negotiable currency because the galactic banks refuse to deal in fiddling small change. From this basic premise, it's very simple to prove that the galactic banks are also the products of a deranged imagination. 7. Sex. None. Well, actually, there is an awful lot of this, largely because of the total lack of money, trade, banks, rainfall, or anything else that might keep all the non-existent people in the universe occupied. However, it's not worth embarking on a long discussion of it now because it really is terribly complicated. For further information, see chapters 7, 9, 10, 11, 14, 16, 17, 19, 21 to 84 inclusive, and most of the rest of the book. It's largely on account of passages like this that the book of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is being revised by Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent. Unfortunately, they're being presented with too many distractions to be able to settle down to doing any solid research. Not only does Arthur Dent still have to find the question to the ultimate answer of life, the universe and everything, but the newly stolen spaceship is currently behaving rather like this. Basically, what you're trying to say is that you can't control it. I'm not trying to say that. The whole bloody ship is. It's the wild colour scheme that freaks me. I mean, when you try and operate one of these weird black controls which are labelled in black on a black background, a small black light lights up black to let you know you've done it. What is this? Some kind of intergalactic hyperhouse? Well, perhaps it is. Isn't there any way you can control it? You're making me feel space-sick. Time-sick. We're plummeting backwards through time. Oh, God. Now I think I really am going to be ill. Go ahead. We could do with a little colour around the place. Oh, for oh. God's sake, Zay. 
Okay, Fog, go easy, will you? Already today we've had to sit through the end of the universe, and before that we were blasted 576,000 years through time by an exploding computer. It's all right for you. I had to go the long way around. How did that happen anyway? How does an exploding computer push you through time? Very simple. It wasn't a computer. It was a hyperspatial fuel generator. Silly. I should have recognized it at once. As it overheated, it blew a hole through the space-time continuum, and you dropped through like a stone through a wet paper bag. I hate wet paper bags. Hey, that sounds better. Have you managed to make some sense of the controls? No, we just stopped fiddling with them. Mm. I think this ship has a far better idea of where it's going than we do. Well, that sounds quite sensible to me. What do you know about it, Ape Man? Well, look, if whoever owns this ship travelled forward in time to the restaurant at the end of the universe, then presumably he must have programmed the ship in advance to return him to the exact point he originally left. Doesn't that make sense? That's quite a good thought, you know. Particularly if he was anticipating having a good time. Drunk in charge of a time ship is a pretty serious offence. They tend to lock you away in some planet Stone Age and tell you to evolve into a more responsible life form. So there's nothing to do but sit back and see where we turn up. So what do we do in the meantime? I've got a pocket Scrabble set. Go play with a nut. Well, if that's your attitude. Hey, look, Earthman, you've got a job to do, remember? The question to the ultimate answer, right? Now, there's a lot of money tied up in that head thing of yours. I mean, just think of the merchandising. Ultimate question, T-shirts, ultimate question, well, yes, biscuits. yes, but where do we start? Know? I don't know. The ultimate answer, so-called, is 42. Well, what's the question? How am I supposed to know? Could be anything. I mean, what's six times seven? Uh, 42. Yes, I know that. I'm just saying the question could be anything. How should I know? Because you and Trillian are the last generation products of the Earth computer matrix. You must know. I know. Shut up, Marvin. This is organism talk. It's printed in the Earth man's brainwave patterns, but I don't suppose you'll be very interested in knowing that. You mean you can see into my mind? Yes. And? It amazes me how you manage to live in anything that small. Ah, abuse. Yes. Oh, he's only making it up. Making it up. Why should I want to make anything up? Life's bad enough as it is without wanting to invent any more of it. Marvin, if you knew what it was all along, why didn't you tell us? You didn't ask. Well, we're asking you now, Metal Man. What's the question? The ultimate question of life, the universe and everything. Yes. To which the answer is 42. Yes, come on. I can tell that you're not really interested. Will you just tell us, you motorized maniac? Hey, look, the control panel's lighting up. We must have arrived. Hey, yeah, we've zapped back into real space. I knew you weren't really interested. The controls won't respond. It's still going its own way. Isn't there any way we can introduce this ship to the concept of democracy? Can we at least find out where we are? The vision screens are all blank. Can't we turn them on? They are on. Why can't we see any stars? Hey, you know, I think we must be outside the galaxy. We're picking up speed. We're heading out into intergalactic space. Arthur, check out the rear screens, will you? I feel cold. All alone in this infinite void. Apart from the fleet of black battlecruisers behind us. What? What? Um... Uh, which uh, particular fleet of black battlecruisers is that, Earthman? Oh, the ones on the rear screens. Sorry, I thought you'd noticed them. There are about a hundred thousand. Is that wrong? No. What do you expect if you steal the flagship of an admiral of the space fleet? Marvin, what makes you think this is an admiral's flagship? I know it is. I parked it for him. Then why the planet of hell didn't you tell us? You didn't ask. You know what we've done? We've dropped ourselves into the vanguard of a major intergalactic war.
Will our heroes ever have a chance to find out what the ultimate question is? Will they be too busy dealing with a hundred thousand horribly beweaponed battlecruisers to have a chance to have a sympathetic chat with Marvin, the paranoid android? Will they eventually have to settle down and lead normal lives as account executives or management consultants? Will life ever be the same again after next week's last and reasonably exciting instalment of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? In that episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Peter Jones was the book. Anthony Sharp was Gark Pitt, the waiter, and Zarquan, the prophet, and Roy Hudd, compere at the restaurant at the end of the universe. With Simon Jones, Arthur Dent, Geoffrey McGiven, Ford Prefect, Mark Wing Davies, Zaford Beeblebrox, Susan Sheridan, Trillian, and Stephen Moore, Marvin. The programme was written by Douglas Adams and John Lloyd, and produced by Geoffrey Perkins, with the assistance of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. If you would like a copy of the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, please write to Megadodo Publications, Megadodo House, Ursa Minor, enclosing £3.95 for the book, plus £597,812,406.7p, postage and packing. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, starring Peter Jones as... The book. of every major galactic civilization has passed through three distinct and recognizable phases, those of survival, inquiry, and sophistication, otherwise known as the how, why, and where phases. For instance, the first phase is characterized by the question, how can we eat? The second by the question, why do we eat? And the third by the question, where should we have lunch? The history of warfare is similarly subdivided. Though here the phases are retribution, anticipation, and diplomacy. Thus, retribution. I am going to kill you because you killed my brother. Anticipation. I'm going to kill you because I killed your brother. And diplomacy. I'm going to kill my brother and then kill you on the pretext that your brother did it. Meanwhile, the Earthman Arthur Dent, to whom all this can be of only academic interest, as his only brother was long ago nibbled to death by an Akapi, is about to be plunged into a real intergalactic war. This is largely because the spaceship that he and his companions have inadvertently stolen from the restaurant at the end of the universe has now returned itself on autopilot to its rightful time and place. Its rightful time is immediately prior to a massive invasion of an entire alien galaxy, and its rightful place is at the head of a fleet of 100,000 black battlecruisers. This is why. You mean this ship we've stolen is the Admiral's flagship? That's the way it's looking. 
Perhaps we should just ask them if they want it back. You know, if we were reasonably polite about they it. They might just let us off with being lightly killed. Yeah, well, at least it's better than... Ooh, than uh... It isn't better than anything at all, is it? Uh, no. Hey, that visit screen, it's beginning to flicker. Hey, it must be some guy wanting orders. Ah, oh, fetid photon. Well, well now, now, just order him to go away. You, you'll just have to bluff it out, Zafe. I'll just have to bluff it out. Yeah, now, sit down and do something. Say something. <gasps> anything. And Now, don't worry, we'll be right behind you, hiding. For this is your idea, isn't it? Yeah. Now, sit down there and be a Star. Hey, when I'm a star, I'll hire a better ideas man. Thank you, Memnon. Underfleet Commander reporting from Vice Mansion. Oh, uh, hi, uh, Underfleet Commandant. Uh, da, da, da. I, uh, Good evening, Admiral. Hi. What? I trust you had a pleasant meal. Uh, what? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm, it was fine. Uh, thanks. Delighted to hear it, we are now in battle readiness. State Amber oh, deployed to your rear in line of stride, seven minutes from target galaxy, and waiting your orders. Great, great. Uh, fine. Well, uh, yeah, you know, uh, keep in touch on under uh, First Commandant. Uh, uh, Thank you, sir. No, sir. Uh, yes? I like your outfit, sir. Oh, uh, yeah. Hey, wow. that is just That's too That's amazing, Zephod. You did it. Cool. Really cool, Zephod. Actually pretending to be the Admiral. <laughs> yeah, yeah, terrific. Now listen, you dumb space cookie. I wasn't pretending to be the Admiral. For some weird reason, he just assumed I was. Well, perhaps you look like him or something. Yeah, well, not if he looks anything like his second-in-command, monkey man. Well, what did oh, he what look like? Then? What was he? Well, he was, he was a big leopard, okay? You know, with, with you know, the uh, the sunglasses, the in-flight casual space suit split to the navel, brown beach loafers, you know, the whole bit. How could he think you were the Admiral? Well, maybe leopards just have a lousy memory for faces. Hilarious. No, it must be simpler than that. There's obviously something wrong with the busy screen. I'll have a look at it. You heard what the big cat said. He said he liked my outfit, so he must have seen me. Ah, maybe you just didn't have any taste. Huh? Hey, the screen's coming on again. Zephyr, get, get back in that seat. Tr Trillian. It's Trillian, too late. Go. Get back, all of you. Hello. Yes. I really like the kid. Even better than the last time. Oh, thanks. Wowee, weirder and weirder. Good God. What is it, Trillian? Did you see that? I thought you said he was a leopard. He sounded different. Did he look different? But he wasn't so much a leopard, more a sort of, uh, sort of... What? Well, you know, shoebox. A shoebox? Full of, well, size nine chuckaboots. A shoebox full of size nine chuckaboots? All right, chimp man, what do you think this is, dictation? I just wondered how she knew there was size nine. Trillian, are you seriously telling us you've been talking to a box of shoes? Yes. And he... She. It. They. Thought that you also were the admiral. Well, you heard it. What are they, clinically thick? I think they're very clever. They're trying to confuse us to death. I don't think they're very clever. There's only one person as intelligent as me within 30 parsecs of here, and that's me. Okay, Marvin. Is there anything that you can tell us? Yes. I've got this terrible pain in all the diodes down my left side. What was the name the second-in-command said? Hagunenon? Why don't we look it up in the book? What book? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, that hack rag. The Hagunenons of Asitatus III have the most impatient chromosomes of any life form in the galaxy. Whereas most races are content to evolve slowly and carefully over thousands of generations, discarding a prehensile toe here, nervously hazarding another nostril there, the Agamemnons would do for Charles Darwin what a squadron of Arcturan stunt apples would have done for Sir Isaac Newton. Their genetic structure, 
based on the quadruple sterated octohelix, is so chronically unstable that far from passing their basic shape onto their children, they will quite frequently evolve several times over lunch. But they do this with such reckless abandon that if, uh, sitting at table, they are unable to reach a coffee spoon, they are liable without a moment's consideration to mutate into something with far longer arms, but which is probably quite incapable of drinking the coffee. This, not unnaturally, produces a terrible sense of personal insecurity and a jealous resentment of all stable life forms, or filthy, rotten, stinking samelings, as they call them. They justify this by claiming that as they have personally experienced what it is like to be virtually everybody else they can think of, they are in a very good position to appreciate all their worst points. This appreciation is usually military in nature and is carried out with unmitigated savagery from the gun rooms of their horribly beweaponed chameleoid death flotilla. Experience has shown that the most effective way of dealing with any Hagodengnon you may meet is to run away terribly fast. Great. Terrific. Thanks a million, Zephod. Well, hey, don't look at me. I mean... What do we do? The book says run away. Uh, how do we get the automatic pilot on our side? Box of chockies and some sweet talk? Any ideas, Marvin? If I were you, I'd be very depressed. Yes, man? I go along with Marvin. Ford? Well, I always find that the prospect of death contracts the mind wonderfully. You know, I've just thought there is a chance. What, a chance? As far as I can see, you might as well lower haystacks off the boat deck of the Lusitania. No, no, think about it. The second in command assumed that the Admiral Zayford and I were the same person, not because we looked similar, but because we looked completely different. Hey, y- so, yes, right, right, I'm with you. If the second in command can be a shoebox, the Admiral can be anything. Well, a paraffin stove, a, a water bison, an anaconda. Oh, terrific. I'll root around for the water bison. Trillian, you see if you you can find the jar the Admiral keeps his anaconda Look, in? can it, Zayford? It could quite easily be something mundane. Uh, a screwdriver, that coil of wire, the chair itself. Yeah. Hey, you know, that's a really neat chair. Could have been made for me. It's got the two headrests, Dig. What, those, those two great furry things? Yeah. Oh, they look ridiculous. Oh, it's very uncomfortable. I'd prefer something with far longer arms. But which is probably quite incapable of drinking coffee. Hey, uh... Uh, what did you say, Earthman? You say headrests, Zayford. They look a lot like eyebrows to me. That chair is scratching its leg. It's just been asleep all this time. Arthur, for God's sake, get back here quick. Yes, yeah, stand up when you sit on the Admiral Primate. It's moving. Look, it's starting to evolve. Oh, wow. <laughs> Eat your heart out, Galapagos eyes. Zephos, you know what that is? Let me guess. Horrible. I'm a wolf. It's a carbon copy of the ravenous bug bladder beast of Charles, and I'm a Vogon's grandmother. The ravenous bug bladder beast of Charles? Is it safe? Oh, yes. It's perfectly safe. It's just us who are in trouble. If that's the Admiral and he still wants his coffee, it ain't sponge fingers he's going to dunk in it. What do I do? Pick up this table by the ears? Oh, God, the whole place is coming alive. Yeah, and we're coming dead. He's ashtray. Just change into a job and I'm going to call Just, just oh. tell it we'll let them know. Get off me, you filthy oh. sofa. God, and I'm all time's vanishing with the river. Get in the escape capsules. Arthur and I'll take this one. Zaybot, you and the others take the left-hand one. Right. Press the ghost on Arthur. Safe. Oh. Oh. Hey, Ford, look. The other capsule's missing. The chute's empty. Someone else must have used that capsule. The others are trapped. Well, it's too late, Arthur. We can't help them. This capsule won't turn back. What happens if I press this button here? Don't! Don't! 
Fortunately for Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent, their capsule was fitted with the latest in instant space travel, the Penagilon Kangaroo Relocation Drive, by which a ship may be ejected suddenly through the fabric of the space-time continuum and come to rest far from its starting point. This is, however, an emergency device, and there is rarely time to plot where the ship will land. Meanwhile, this is what happened to Zephard, Trillian and Marvin. And this is what happened to Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect. We've materialized inside another spaceship. More problems. Well, we'll see. Checks. Atmosphere's okay. L let's get out and have a look. Ford? Yeah? What about the others? Arthur, you'll have to learn. It's a convention in all space traveling species that if you have to ditch someone, you know, a friend, and there's nothing you can do, you just let it be. You don't talk about them, okay? What, really? And then we get blind drunk about them later. I think there must be something terribly wrong with the universe, you know. I think there must be something terribly wrong with this ship. Yes, it looks like a mausoleum. That's it. Yes, you're right. The, the place is full of sarcophagi as far as the eye can see. Wow. What's so great about dead people? Well, I don't know. Let's have a look. Here, here. There's a plaque on this one. What does it say? Golga Frincham, Ark Fleet, Ship B, Hold 7, Telephone Sanitizer, Second Class, and a serial number. Telephone Sanitizer? A dead Telephone Sanitizer? Best kind. Well, what's he doing here? Not a lot. No, but I mean, why? Good God. This one's a dead hairdresser. And this one here's an advertising account executive. Yeah, are these really coffins? They're terribly cold. <laughs> All right! Hold it right there! Why isn't anyone ever pleased to see us? Um, uh, 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 Captain? Oh, yes, number one? I've just had a sort of, um, uh, report thing from number two. Oh, dear. He was shouting something or other about having found some prisoners. Oh, well, perhaps that'll keep him happy for a bit. <laughs> He's always wanted some, isn't yeah. he? <laughs> Captain Sarp. Oh, hello, number two. Having a nice day? I brought you the prisoners I located in Freeze Bay 7, Sarp. Hello. Uh, hello. Oh, hello. Excuse me, not getting up, just having a quick bath. <laughs> well, um, gin and tonics all round then. Uh, look in the fridge, will you, number one? Certainly, certainly. Yeah. Don't you want to interrogate the prisoners? Ah, dear, dear, why on earth should I want to do that? Hmm? Well, to get information out of them, sir. They are my prisoners. Can't I just interrogate them a little bit? Oh, all right, if you must. Ask them what they want to drink. Oh, thank you, sir. No. All right, you scum, you vermin. I say, steady on, number two. Oh, very good, sir. Thank you. What do you want to drink? Well, the gin and tonic sounds very nice to me, Arthur. What? Oh, yes. With ice or without? Oh, with, please. Lemon! Oh, yes, please. And do you have any of those little biscuits? You know, the cheesy ones. I'm asking a question. Uh, num number two. Number two. Sir, 
push off, would you? There's a good chap. I'm trying to have a relaxing bath. Sir, may I remind you that you have now been in that bath for over three years? Yeah. Well, you need to relax a lot in a job like mine. What on earth's going on? Uh, could I actually ask you um, what your job is, in fact? Uh, your drinks. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I mean, I couldn't help noticing, you know, the bodies. Bodies? All those dead telephone sanitizers and account executives, you know, in, in the oh, hole. Well, they, they're not dead, good Lord, no. No, they're just frozen. They're going to be revived. You really mean you've got a hold full of frozen hairdressers? Oh, yes, millions of them. Hairdressers, tired TV producers, insurance salesmen, personnel officers. Security guards. Management consultants. Yes. Well, you name it, we've got it. We certainly have, yes. We're going to colonise another planet. What? Well, it's yes. exciting, isn't it, eh? What, with that lot? Yeah. Oh, don't misunderstand me. We're just one of the ships in the Ark fleet. We're the B Ark, you see. Uh, sorry. Could I just ask you to, 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 to run a bit more hot water in for me? Thanks. Ah, yes. Do help yourself to more drinks, you? Oh, thanks. What's a BR? What? Oh, well, what happened, you see, was our planet was doomed. Doomed? Oh, yes. So what everyone thought was, well, let's pack the whole population in some sort of giant spaceship, you see, and go and settle on another planet. You mean a less doomed one? No, oh, precisely. Yeah. So it was decided to build three ships, three arcs in space. <laughs> anyway... Where's the soap? Ah, thank you. Ah. So the idea was that into the first ship, the A ship, would go all the brilliant leaders. The scientists? Yes, the great artists, you know, all the achievers. Mm. And then into the third ship, the C ship, would go all the people who did the actual work, who made things and did things. And then into the B ship... That's us. Yes, ...would go everyone else, the middlemen, you see. Mm. And so we were sent off first. But what was wrong with your planet? Well, it was doomed, as I said. Apparently, it was going to crash into the sun. Or was it that the moon was going to crash into us? No, no, I thought it was. The planet was more or less bound to be invaded by a gigantic swarm of 12-foot piranha bees. Oh, no, 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 that's not what I was told. Just My yes. commanding officer swore blind that the entire planet was in imminent danger of being eaten by an enormous mutant stargoat. Oh, really? Yes, he was really? just hoping that the ship he was going in would be ready in time. But they made sure that they sent all you lot off first anyway. Oh, yes. Well, everyone said, and um, very nicely, I thought. Oh, yes, absolutely yeah, charming. Yeah, that it was very important for morale to feel that they would be arriving on a planet where they could be sure of a good haircut and where the phones were clean. Oh, yes, well, I, I can see that would be very important. Mm. Can you? Uh, and uh, the, the other ships followed on after you, did they? Ah, well... It's funny you should mention that, yes, because, yes. Yes, curiously enough, we haven't actually heard a peep out of them since we left five years ago. No. Well, they must be behind us somewhere. Mm -hmm. Unless, of course, they were eaten by the goat. Ah, yes, the goat. Hmm. It's a funny thing, you know, now that I actually come to tell the story to someone else, I mean, <clears throat> does it strike you as odd, number one? Well, sir, uh... Huh? Ah, ah. Mm. Well, mm. I, c I can oh. see that you've oh. got a lot of things you're going to yeah. want to talk about, so thanks for the drinks, and if you could sort of drop us off at the nearest convenient ah. planet. Well, that's a little difficult to see, because our trajectory thingy was preset before we left Golga Frinchum. Mm. When are you going to reach the planet you're meant to be colonising? Oh, well, we're nearly there, I think. Yes, any second now. Well, it's probably time I got out of the bath, in fact. <laughs> uh... Oh, I don't know, though. Why stop just when you're enjoying it, I always know. So we're actually going to land in a minute? Well, not not, not too much land, in fact. I think, as far as I can remember, we're programmed to uh, crash on it. Crash? crash? Uh, yes. It's all part of the plan, I think. 
There was a terribly good reason for it, which I can't quite remember at the moment. You're a load of useless bloody loonies. Ah, yes, that was it. That was the reason. God, <laughs> pass me the loot, will you? Oh. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has this to say about the planet of Gogga Frinchum. It is a planet with an ancient and mysterious history, in which the most mysterious figures of all are, without doubt, those of the great circling poets of Arium. These circling poets used to live in remote mountain passes where they would lie in wait for small bands of unwary travellers, circle round them and throw rocks at them. And when the travellers cried out, saying, why didn't they go away and get on with writing some poems instead of pestering people with all this rock-throwing business, they would suddenly break off and sing them an incredibly long and beautiful song in which they told of how there once went forth from the city of Vasilian a party of five sage princes with four horses. The first part of the song tells how these five sage princes, who are, of course, brave, noble and wise, travel widely in distant lands, fight giant ogres, pursue exotic philosophies, take tea with weird gods and rescue beautiful monsters from ravening princesses, before finally announcing that they have achieved enlightenment and that their wanderings are therefore accomplished. The second and much longer part tells of all their bickerings about which one of them is going to have to walk back. It was, of course, a descendant of these eccentric poets who invented the spurious tales of impending doom which enabled the people of Golga Frinchum to rid themselves of an entire useless third of their population. The other two-thirds, of course, stayed at home and lived full, rich and happy lives until they were all suddenly wiped out by a virulent disease contracted from a dirty telephone. Meanwhile, Arthur Dent, Ford Prefect, and an arcload of frozen middle management men have crashed into the prehistoric dawn of a small blue-green planet circling an unregarded yellow sun at the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy. After a year or so, they convene a meeting to consider their position, which is not, on the whole, good. I'd like to call this meeting to some sort of order, if that is at all possible. Careful, like Prince, sir. Uh, not now, love. Look, no, come on, please. I mean, everybody, there's some important news. We've made a discovery. Is it on the agenda? Oh, don't give me that. Well, I'm sorry, but speaking as a fully trained management consultant, I must insist on the importance of observing the committee structure. Yeah, a here, prehistoric here. planet? Address the chair. Yes. There isn't a chair, there's only a rock. Well, call it a chair. Why not call it a rock? You you obviously have no conception of modern business there. And you have no conception of where the hell you oh, are. Oh, shut up, you two. Just shut up. I want to table a motion. Boulder a motion, you thank, thank you. I think I've made that point. Now, listen. Order. Order. Oh, God. Listen, I would like to call to order the 573rd meeting of the Colonization Committee of the Planet of Fidful Woodlands. Oh, this is futile. 573 committee meetings, and you haven't even discovered fire yet. If you would care to look at the agenda sheet. Agenda rock. Oh, go on back home something, will you? You will see that we are about to have a report from the hairdresser's fire development subcommittee today. That's me. Yeah, well, you know what they've done, don't you? You gave them a couple of sticks, and they've gone and developed them into a pair of bloody scissors. When you have been in marketing as long as I have, you'll know that before any new product can be developed, it has to be properly researched. Yes, yes. I mean, yes, yes, we've got to find out what people want from fire. I mean, how do they relate to it, the image? Oh, stick it... it up your nose. 
Yes, which is precisely the sort of thing we need to know. I mean, do people want fire that can be fitted nasally? Yes, and, and, and the wheel. What about this wheel thingy? Sounds terribly interesting project to me. Uh, yes. Yeah, well, we're having a little uh, difficulty here. Difficulty? Uh, it's yeah. the single simplest machine in the entire universe. Well, all right, Mr. Wise Guy. If you're so clever, you tell us what colour it should be. Oh, yeah. mighty Zarkon. Has no one done anything? Finlon, the producer, has rescued a camera from the wreckage of the ship and is making a fascinating documentary on the indigenous cavemen of the area. Oh, yes, and they're dying out. Have you noticed that? Uh, yes, we must make a note, sir, to stop selling them light. But don't you yeah. understand? Just since we've arrived, they've started dying out. Well, yes, uh, yes, and this comes over terribly well in the film that he's making. I gather that he wants to uh, make a documentary about you next, Captain. What? Oh, yes. oh really? I say that's all. Oh, he's nice. got a very oh, yeah. strong angle on it. You yes. know, the burden of responsibility, the loneliness of command. Ah, ah, well, well, I wouldn't overstress that angle, you know. I mean, one's never alone with a rubber duck. Sir, listen, if we uh, could uh, for a moment move on to the subject of fiscal policy. Fiscal policy? Yes. How can you have money? If none of you actually produce anything, it doesn't grow on trees. Well, you know. Look, if you yes. would allow me to continue. 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 Yes, since we decided a few weeks ago to adopt leaves as legal tender, we have, of course, all become immensely rich. Yes, But we have also run into a small inflation problem on account of the high level of leaf availability, which means that I gather the current going rate has something like three major deciduous forests buying one ship's peanuts. Yes, so, um, in order to obviate this problem and effectively revalue the leaf, we are about to embark on an extensive defoliation campaign and, um, uh, burn down all the forests. I think that's a sensible move, don't you? That yeah. makes economic You're absolutely performing! You're a raving nutter! Well, is it? Perhaps in order to inquire what you have been doing all this time, huh? Yes. yes. You and that other interloper have been missing for months. Well, with respect, love, we have been travelling around trying to find out something about this planet. Well, that doesn't sound very productive. I mean, I thought... No, well, I have yeah. got yeah. news. I have got yeah. news for you. It doesn't matter a pair of fetid dingo's kidneys, what you all choose to do from now on. Burn down the forest, anything. It will make a scrap of difference. Two million years you've got, and that's it. At the end of that, your race will be dead, gone, and good riddance to you. Remember that, two million years. Ah, it's time for another bath. <laughs> Pass me the sponge, somebody, will you? No, Q scores ten, you see, and it's on a triple word score, so... <laughs> I'm sorry, but I explained the rules. <laughs> no, no, look, please put down that jawbone. <laughs> All right, we'll start again, <laughs> and try to concentrate this time. <laughs> what are you doing, Arthur? Trying to teach the caveman to play Scrabble. It's uphill work. The only word they know is grunt, and they can't spell it. And would you please tell me what that is supposed to achieve? We've got to encourage them to evolve, Ford. Can you imagine what a world is going to be like that descends from those cretins over there? We don't have to imagine. Let's face it, we already know what it's like. We've seen it. There's no escape. Did you tell them what we discovered? Slarty Bartfast's signature on the glacier? No. What's, what's the point? Why should they listen? What's it to them that this place happens to be called the Earth? And that it happens to be my original home. Yeah, but you won't even be born for nearly two million years. So they're likely to feel that it's not a lot of your business. I mean, face up to it, Arthur. Those Zebes over there are your ancestors, not these cavemen. 
put the Scrabble away, it won't save the human race. Mm. Because Mr. Ugg here is not destined to be the human race. The human race is currently sitting round that rock over there, making documentaries about themselves. But there must be something we can do. No, nothing. Really, nothing. Because it's all been done. I mean, listen. We've been backwards and forwards through time and ended up here. Two million years behind where we started. But that doesn't change the future, because we've seen it. I mean, wise up, kid. There's nothing you can do to change it, because it's already happened. And all because we arrived here with the Golga Frinchams in their B-Arc? Yes. <laughs> Poor bloody caveman. It's all been a bit of a waste of time for you, hasn't it? You've been out-evolved. Telephone sanitizer. <laughs> He's pointing, pointing at the scrabble board. Oh, he's probably spelled library with one R again, poor bastard. No, he hasn't. Hey, no, look. It says 42. The experiment. It's something to do with a computer program to find the ultimate question. Hey, you know what this means, don't you? What? It must have gone wrong. If the computer matrix was set up to follow the evolution of the human race through from the cavemen, and then we've arrived and caused them to die out... And actually replaced them? And then the whole thing is cocked up. So whatever it was that Marvin spotted in my brainwave patterns is in fact the wrong question. Yeah! Well, it might be right, but it's probably wrong. Oh, if only we could find out what it is. Look, if it's printed in my brainwave patterns, but I don't know how to reach it... Suppose we introduce some random element which can be shaped by that pattern. Like? Pulling out letters from the Scrabble bag. Brilliant. That's bloody brilliant. Right. right. First four letters. W-H-A-T. What? One more. Yeah, D-O. Do. It's working. This is terrific. It's really coming. You get... What do you get? More here. Uh, if you mu multiply... Oh, I'm beginning to get sinking feelings about this. If you multiply at six by... by by nine? By nine? Is that it? That's it. Six by nine. Forty-two. I always said there was something fundamentally wrong about the universe. Mm. So what do we do now? I guess we just swallow our pride and go and join the human race. Yes. Yuck. Right. Yuck. It's sad, though. Just at the moment, it's a very beautiful planet. It is. It is indeed. The rich primal greens, the river snaking off into the distance... The burning trees. And in two million years, bang, it gets destroyed by the Vogons. What a life for a young planet to look forward to. Well, better than some. I read of one planet off in the seventh dimension that got used as a ball in a game of intergalactic bar billiards. Got potted straight into a black hole, killed ten billion people. Mm, total madness. Yeah, only scored thirty points too. Where did you read that? Oh, book. Which book was that? Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, that thing. In the last episode of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Peter Jones was the book. Simon Jones played Arthur Dent and Geoffrey McGiven, Ford Prefect. Mark Wing Davy was Zaphod Beeblebrox, Susan Sheridan, Trillian, Stephen Moore, Marvin, Beth Porter, Marketing Girl, Jonathan Cecil, Number One and Management Consultant, David Jason, Captain and Caveman, and Aubrey Woods, number two, and The Hairdresser. The program was written by Douglas Adams and John Lloyd and produced by Jeffrey Perkins, with the technical assistance of Alec Hale Monroe and Paul Horden and Harry Parker and Dick Mills of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. What a wonderful world The colours of the rainbow So pretty in the sky 
are also on the faces of people going by. I see friends shaking hands, saying how they do. They're really saying I love you. I hear babies cry. I watch them grow. They like much more than I never knew, and I think to myself. What a wonderful world Yes, I think to myself What a wonderful world